The New Beverly presents the Pure Cinema Podcast, calendar edition, February 2020. Uh, welcome back. We are. This is one of the more most exciting calendars I've seen since we've been doing this, especially for the kind of movies that uh, I either haven't seen or have been dying to see or are super rare from the 70s. Uh, we are very lucky, uh, as always, to be uh, joined from the theater itself by Phil Blankenship. Welcome back. Hello, guys. And I'm Phil Blankenship. I'm the social media manager and all-around... Uh, Maniac at the New Beverly. Absolutely. And uh, somebody I've known for uh, years, uh, I call him Man About Town, but <laughs> Jim Hemphill, who is a, both a filmmaker uh, and he is a film enthusiast and he's you know written many great articles on cinema. Uh, so we've, it was just a matter of time before we could get you on the show. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. And who are you, Elric? I, that is, you got it. <laughs> I, I'm the host of this show, Pure Cinema. Uh, that's all you need to know about me. <laughs> I don't and know what else I am. I am Brian Sauer, the other host of Pure Cinema. The people, you're probably right to have to introduce us because many times people go, I can't remember if it's Elric or Brian who recommended. Yeah, XYZ. that happens happen today. Time, I'm like, really? Yep. Anyway. Um, <laughs> really? So, His taste is terrible. We've been doing this for years. Um, but this is a really, this is a really exciting, uh, you know, calendar. We, you know, we've done a couple things dedicated to the 70s this year. We did a, uh, a 70s uh, kind of discoveries or kind of cult films. Also, 70s, a lot of the discoveries made my finalists. So, it was really exciting to see some of these titles. I was like, oh, my God, I'll never see that on screen. Here they are. Yeah. So very cool programming. Uh, Jim, I always like to kind of start with uh, Nubev. What is your relationship and kind of first kind of memories of discovering the theater? Oh, gosh. The first time I ever went to the Nubev was I moved here in the summer of 93, I think. Yeah, because I remember the first movie I ever saw in L.A. was uh, The Fugitive. So it would have been the summer of 93. So anyway, I came out here in the summer of 93. And the first movie I ever saw at the Nubev was uh, Red Desert. Mm-hmm. And it was at the time, I remember it, it was advertised as new print. And I got there, and it looked like somebody had been shaven with it. I mean, it was just, <laughs> there were so many hairs and scratches. And uh, so I think it just meant new print to that theater. Um, <laughs> but I uh, but I loved it. I mean, I, I remember a lot of my, yeah, my first experience with the new Bev Red Desert was one. I remember going there to see the five-hour cut of Bertolucci's 1900. So I was, I was a little more... Uh, erudite in those days, I suppose. I was a little more, you know, going towards the higher end as opposed to now when I make the effort to go, it's usually to see something like Silver Bullet or uh, Friday the 13th, uh, you know, part Jason five? Lives or whatever, <laughs> you know. No, which one? New Beginning. New Beginning is the one that's part five. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, I remember very distinctly Red Desert. I also remember um, the thing about 1900 when I saw, I mean, this was all very, you know, pre, this was under old management or whatever, but I do remember the 1900 director's cut when I saw that there that uh, they somehow the print was sent mislabeled and so they showed the reels out of order so it was like reel one and then reel three and then reel two and I of course had seen the movie so many times like I knew and got up and complained and so then they had to like you know re-thread it all and every and so it actually ended up being a seven hour experience ah. practically by the time I was there. now I'm questioning still- what's going on back in the day because my first story is the same one which was the I saw the mirror mm-hmm. and it was out of order and, well. and, and you couldn't tell because the movie feels right. like that it's like, and, and I didn't it's know like it was last out of year order and bad or something yeah, yeah it wouldn't matter it's like <laughs> but uh, so that's great, um, and I think we all kind of experience that with our with our taste too. Like sometimes you do kind of seek out these foreign titles, and then at some point you just want to be entertained by these films you loved in the eighties, but don't get to see on screen anymore. Well, you know what I found is, I mean, in a weird way, like I still, you know, I still watch a lot of very, you know artistic movies and things. But I have found that since I made my own movies, it makes me a little bit more. Um, 
you know, when I'm going to watch movies for fun, I really want to have fun because it's like I it's like I don't want movies to be work when it's mm-hmm. my off time. So I do again, not nothing against Antonioni or Bertolucci, who are wonderful, but uh, I am probably in some ways more likely to watch, you know, Fright Night or something like that. Uh, now, we know that you've also seen Once Upon a Time uh, in Hollywood a, f- a number of times, and I know uh, Phil was wanting to ask you about some of the Q&A stuff, because you've really been doing a lot of Q&As around town, not just for that film, but in general, and that's been great to see, because I think you do great Q&As. Uh, but yeah, to give us uh, the rundown of your Once Upon a Time in Hollywood count. Uh, I've seen it 17 times now. And somebody asked me the other night, you know, you know, why do you do that? When are you going to stop? And I said, I'll stop <laughs> when I stop getting new things out of it. I mean, I honestly, and the great thing about doing the Q&As, so I've done Q&As for the movie around town. You know, I've done some with Quentin. I've done some with the costume designer, Ann Phillips. I've done the production designer, Barbara Ling. I've done producer, Sham McIntosh, AD, editor, sound guy. I did one with the sound guys the other night. Like, I've done a bunch. And what's great about it is, so when I do those Q&As, I always sit through the movie again, and every time I watch it through the lens of whoever I'm going to be talking to. So if I'm going to be talking to Barbara Ling, I'm watching for the production design. And that's when I, you know, so I'm always seeing, and the movie is so richly detailed that it sort of holds up to that kind of scrutiny. And also just just little fun things, you know, like uh, on one of my repeat viewings, noticing that the TV guide that the guys got at the end of the you know movie, which was the TV guide from that week, has Andrew Duggan on it from Lancer. Mm. And so that led me to ask Quentin like if he had actually reverse engineered the entire movie <laughs> just so that he could use that TV guide, you know, which <laughs> you know, that wasn't exactly what he did. There was a little more to the yeah. story than that. Um, but it's just, it's such a, you know, it's such a fun movie in terms of all those old details. And I mean, I also, you know, it's funny, I, you know, with uh, Quentin's movies, I mean, I always, people ask me like, what's your favorite Tarantino movie? Because I've been a fan of his forever. And I always say, you know, it's kind of like asking a parent to pick their favorite child because I do love them all equally and differently. But once upon a time in Hollywood, there's just something about the romance for movies and people who make them. I just, I, it, to me, it's like if you make movies and love movies, I feel like it's so irresistible. You know, and uh, and the most surprising, it just like you said about layers. It's the one that had these layers that you didn't get on first view. Well, you have to see it at least twice because yeah. the first time you see it, it's got this this sense of dread. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess I don't want to give any spoilers away here, just in case there's anybody listening who hasn't seen it yet. But you know, basically, when you know where it goes, it makes it a completely different experience the second time. And then those later viewings, you just can really dig into the details. You can really kind of get under the hood, too, of, like, what a great director he is. I mean, I think that in a weird way, because his movies are often so dialogue-driven, he's kind of strangely underrated a little bit as a visual stylist, and, and, and also because he's very... He's a classicist. Like, he's not a visual stylist who is... His camera work isn't getting in the way. He's not being show-offy, but it's so elegant and beautiful. I mean, he... Him and uh, Robert Richardson, the cinematographer... They really kind of they use the like the crane is to them what like the steady cam is to De Palma mm-hmm. or the you know uh, or handheld is to Paul Greengrass or something. It's like they they really use it as this expressive tool. And the more and more you see the movie, you can just kind of see the subtleties and the nuances of that. And anyway, obviously, it's yeah. a movie I really love, and uh, I look forward to going to see it the eighteenth time. Well, I tell you what, we're going to open up February with uh, screenings of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on Saturday, February 1st and Sunday, February 2nd. Um, if anybody sees that at the New Beverly, what do you think uh, they should look out for? If they see it at the New Beverly? Yeah. Well, for one thing, they should look out for the pre-show, I guess. I mean, because, but, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. In the movie, what should they be looking out for? When they go, you, you mean when they go to El Coyote? 
Sure. No, I'm just yeah. saying anything. Uh, if <laughs> if somebody's watching the movie, they've seen I mean, it a I bunch think, of times. What do you yeah. think they should? Oh, is oh, there I anything see. new that they should look for? I mean, I just think. I mean, again, just something that jumped in my mind that is fun about seeing it at the New Beverly is you know there's the great in joke in the movie about the porno theater, which of course the Beverly used to be a porno theater, and you know it was even a wasn't it like a gay porno theater at one point. It too? was. Yeah. So um, so I always you know it's always fun to watch it. It's fun to see that movie in different theaters around town because if you see it at the Cinerama Dome, everyone cheers when the Cinerama Dome comes on, <laughs> and they have that Krakatoa East of Java shot. And when you see the new Beverly, everybody cheers when they go to El Coyote and you see the searchlights in the background for that. But um, but yeah, gosh, what to what to look for? You know, I just think here's here's what I, I think is fun to look at in that movie is all the scenes of the TV show being made within the movie. Just look if you've seen the movie before, just spend your time looking around the edges of the frame at what's going on behind the main action, because the movie, you know, uh, I mean, uh, the AD on that movie, Bill Clark, you know, who uh, has done most of Quentin's movies, I think going back to Jackie Brown. I mean, this guy is just a master of kind of chore- of choreographing background action. And there's so many fun little details just about the making of the TV show going on that you can see if you watch the movie over and over again. So I would say kind of look for that stuff. I like that. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie at the New Beverly, know that we do have a special pre-show that was programmed by Quentin Tarantino. And that really sets the mood much better than seeing it, you know, at your local AMC or something like that. It's the best. I could watch that hullabaloo number in its entirety, you know, 50 times. <laughs> um, well, that takes us into, I know something that you're very excited to talk about, a, a Bob Fosse double, yeah, uh, which is on the third, uh, and that is All That Jazz and Chicago. Yeah. yeah, it's a great double feature because All That Jazz, you know, for people who don't know, is essentially inspired by Fosse's life when he was directing the stage version of Chicago in the 70s. He was basically at the time he was directing, I believe he was directing Chicago on stage and editing Lenny, the film, at the same time and basically just running himself ragged, you know, filling himself with pills, womanizing, basically everything you see the Roy Scheider character doing in all that jazz. And so there are all these fun little parallels, even though, you know, at times Fosse would deny that all that jazz was autobiographical, which is ridiculous. <laughs> like, like, like I've seen interviews with him where he'll say, you know, oh, it's just, you know, yes, some <laughs> things are inspired by my life, but it's, it's not autobiographical. And yet there are all these fun details like the pills there's this montage that keeps running through the movie of Roy Scheider taking his pills and the pill bottle, the address on the pill bottle is Fosse's address, you know, and things like that. And of course, uh, one of the love interests for Roy Scheider's character and Ryan King in the movie was in fact Fosse's girlfriend for a long time, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of stuff, but it's beyond just the fun part of it being a kind of, you know, trying to look for the clues of like what's really Fosse and what's not. It's also, I think, it's one of the great movies ever about directing. And it's, it's very obviously inspired in a lot of ways by, um, it's one of this, it's one of this streak of movies that was inspired by eight and a half, you know, it's like, um, Paul Bezersky made Alex in Wonderland and Fosse did all that jazz. And, um, you know, Woody Allen did Stardust Memories. Like it clearly eight and a half was like a really formative movie mm. for a lot of directors in this era. But I think what Fosse's movie gets that none of the other ones, I mean, eight and a half has it too, but like Fosse's movie really gets the weird combination of being besieged by people and questions and yet also feeling totally alone. Like he really gets the sort of solitary nature of directing in a weird way and and that weird dichotomy. So that's one thing that I think uh, is really great about that movie. And it's also a great movie about how directors about the combination of ego and insecurity that they have. I mean, you know, because I, which I think many, many directors uh, have that that dichotomy. And there's like this great, you know, the, the 
I could call him Fosse. His name's actually Joe Gideon in the movie, but the Joe Gideon character played by Roy Scheider, I mean, he's got this big ego and everything, but then there's a scene where they're going to do like a screening of Lenny for the studio and he runs into the bathroom and throws up. And it's like you see, or, or no, or maybe that's before the uh, test of the dance sequence. Anyway, either, either way, one, one way or another, he's about to show something and he goes and like pukes and, um, uh, and that's great. And there's just, there's so many cool, again, just kind of layers, like the whole, sh- the whole way they show like a director working things out and they show him, you know, he's editing this movie within the movie that's clearly Lenny and the editor in the movie is his real editor, Alan Heim. And it's kind of interesting because the whole, the movie itself was sort of an outgrowth of the editing style. Like with Lenny, there's this editing style that Fosse fell into that wasn't in the script because basically with Lenny, they, they cast Dustin Hoffman and Fosse realized he wasn't really dangerous enough mm. to be Lenny Bruce. Like they got in the editing room and they were like, this guy's like a little too nice or cuddly or something and so the way they fixed that in the editing room was they created this really jagged cutting pattern where they would cut in and out of scenes and like just screw up the time frame and just basically make this this really jittery style and it worked so well that then all that jazz did the same thing but it was all scripted Mm. um so that's kind of fun and well, I should have said influence because you know Chicago is heavily influenced, especially the choreography by Fosse. So it's Fosse esque when I say Fosse double. But the, you well, know, it's, this Rob Marshall's film. Yeah, Rob Marshall directed it, and it's kind of the way I feel about Chicago. Like I think it's, uh, I think it's a fun movie, and I think it's this is a great double feature. I mean, this is one of my favorite double features on the calendar. Hmm. Um, but the thing about watching Chicago after all that jazz is it is a little bit to Bob Fosse what like Bad Boys for Life is to Michael Bay, where it's kind of a reasonable facsimile that kind of gets the gets the, the the style right but what chicago lacks is the sort of poison pen letter to show business aspect like all of fossey's movies with the exception of sweet charity which i've never seen but like cabaret lenny all that jazz star 80 if there's a thing that links them they're all love hate letters to showbiz mm. and they're all basically if you could sum up those movies in one sentence it's show business kills mm. <laughs> like that's kind of what all those movies are about and chicago kind of doesn't have the sense of danger that those movies have so i you know i feel like it stands on its own it's a you know i mean the main reason to see chicago on the big screen is Catherine zeta jones just yeah. like fucking blows the back of the theater off i mean she is it's one of the great star performances ever and she won an oscar for it yeah, yeah. And, and rightfully so so i mean it's uh yeah. Anyway, I've I've probably used up all of our time just talking about Bob Fosse. But, uh. I also want to talk briefly about the special print of all that jazz that we have. So during its initial run, there were a small handful of prints that were made with a magnetic soundtrack, which was like a, which is now a uh, now dormant uh, multi-channel sound uh, format that doesn't get presented all that often. And it sounds really killer. If you haven't seen a, a mag print play at the New Bev, know that it really really has a full rich deep sound that you just can't get on a different kind of audio tracks from that that era the print is a little faded but i think that it's going to sound so good that you aren't even going to care yeah i saw Lamont at the new bev with a mag track and it was honestly one of the best sounding mm. movies i've ever seen in my life yeah nice. i saw purple rain the mag track print of that and that was literally the best film sound i have ever heard wow sound fucking good and I just want to add, of course, that All That Jazz won the Palme d'Or and was later nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award. And then Chicago, of course, won Best Picture. All right. Uh, moving on to vampires. Uh, well, we have a Steph- vampire. Uh, yeah, a vampire. We have uh, Stephanie Rothman's The Velvet Vampire and uh, Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day. Uh, and I, I haven't seen uh, Velvet Vampire, a big Trouble Every Day fan, but you're a fan of I'm a big one? Velvet Vampire fan, yeah. And I'm actually kind of, I mean, I'm a big Stephanie Rothman fan yeah. in general. 
uh, I really think she's an interesting director from that whole Corman school. You know, all the, it's, it's always interesting watching those Corman movies and seeing how directors would sort of try to impose their own personality on the material and, and whether the kind of genre requirements would drown that out or vice versa. And I feel like Rothman is a really interesting case because often her personality is really at odds with the material. Like You'll meet her at night in a dark place. She's beautiful and she's waiting for you. Waiting to love you to death. Who was this strange and beautiful creature who called herself Diane? Who lived among the dead and the forgotten? Diane, there's one thing I don't get. The headstone said your husband died in 1875. And what were her sinister plans for the attractive young couple she enticed into her evil world? What was the source of the malignant power by which she drew them into an endless night of unearthly horror? I like Velvet Vampire for the same reason that it wasn't successful when it came out, Mm. which is that it's both kind of very, very arty and this kind of softcore exploitation movie or whatever. And the two, the two things don't really seem to synthesize. They kind of butt up against each other. But to me, that's part of what makes it interesting. Um, you know, plus it has like my favorite dialogue exchange in any movie, which is <laughs> you come here often only when I want ass or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like whenever I want some ass. Like I, I watched this for the first time this weekend, mm. partially because you said you were such a fan of it. Yeah. And, and I definitely did enjoy it. And I definitely did enjoy what you're saying about how she, you know, is doing her thing. It's definitely an art film in that context. And yeah, there's, it's, it just feels so different than almost any other Corman production I've seen, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, and I feel like it's somewhat, infl- or wait, I don't know that Corman produced it per se, but no, he might've just distributed this yeah. one. He produced student nurses, which she directed, which is also, that's a fantastic movie. Um, this one he might've just distributed, but it, and it's, and I feel like it's kind of an, an influential movie, uh, you know, I feel like the Love Witch seems Absolutely. definitely one hundred percent. Definitely, that was definitely going through my head. Yeah, I feel like that took a lot from it. You know, um, but yeah, it's it's a really I think it's a really cool movie. Yeah, I'm a big big fan. It's dreamlike and unlike anything you've seen, unless you saw the Love Witch uh, at the New Bev last year. Um, but let's yeah. go into Trouble Every Day. I know you're a big fan of that. Yeah, and I, I, I guess maybe I saw this print a couple years ago in in New York, and it was gorgeous. Um, and I'd seen it when it first came out. Uh, beautiful score by the Tinder Sticks on this one. And this is one of my favorite Claire Denis films. Uh, has all the hallmarks of her uh, almost esoteric and uh, films where you can't just pick it up completely in your hand. There's parts, not parts missing, but it's just a different type of filmmaking, le- less narrative bound for sure. But I also happen to really like Vincent Gallo's presence in movies. Uh, I think he's great in this. It's like there's a, he's a, playing kind of a scientist uh, and he's on a honeymoon and they, uh, in France. And basically Beatrice Dahl, who's just a force of nature as a presence from Betty Blue on, uh, she has, has vampirism or something like it, a blood disease and a blood craving of some kind and uh, is, is more or less out of control and uh, we start to put pieces together realize she might not be the only one who is suffering from this and it, so it's kind of this like interesting lingery love story but a lot of it's about sex and lust there's a lot of sequences there's a sequence with a housemaid uh, in a hotel in Vincent Gallo that just never have completely uh, shrugged off. It just has this weird energy to it, which is usually a hallmark of a movie I, I tend to love for a long period. Uh, I don't think Claire, all of Claire's other films, the ones that don't touch genre, never maybe work as well for me, uh, but that's probably just my taste. I, think, I feel the same way. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that 
I, I'm open to this kind of arty approach mm. much more in genre than I, I mean, you know, I like an art film here and there myself anyway, but this is, I, this is another one I watched for the first time mm. this weekend. And I was like, oh, this is definitely one of those movies that's not going to give you anything. It's just going to like, you're going to hear conversations, you're going to have to put it together yourself, and you're probably not going to be able to put it all together necessarily. It has a timeline that makes, on first viewing, makes it uh, more challenging. And then when you see it the second time, you, it does all fall. It, it's a lot clearer. That's, I remember yeah. seeing it just a couple of years ago. It really made a lot more sense in that first viewing. Um, but also just the kind of blood, when blood is that color, this sounds really strange, but when it's that tactile, that dark, it mm -hmm. feels so real yeah. that it stays with me so much more than a lot of American horror films. And there's something, she, she's gone to great it's a very bloody film when people are being eaten it's not for fun it's mm -hmm. brutal and ugly and uh, I think that the, I'm, I'm going to be at this one because I haven't seen Velvet Vampire and it's a great chance to see these two together so I, uh, it sounds like a cool double yeah it's a great double feature and uh, if you take a look at the new Beverly blog you can see that Mark Coik has put together an excellent piece uh, comparing these two films and it's nice. up and available to read now very cool um, so we move from that into a uh, cool double bill of a new film and a semi-older film. We've got Uncut Gems and The Object of Beauty from 1991. That's on February 5th and February 6th. And one of them has the, the Safdies uh, potentially. Yeah, I'm actually going to moderate a Q&A with the Safdies on the 6th. Nice. How did you, Well, I mean, let's start because we've never talked about Uncut Gems on air. Uh, I think it's phenomenal. I think you are the most annoying person I have ever met. I hate being with you. I hate looking at you. And if I had my way, I would never see you again. It's because you're mad. You're mad and it makes sense. Like it was a yeah. hurricane of a movie this year. Uh, yeah. I was really bummed it was a little late on that award circuit, it seems. Uh, but it, like the one thing I, I felt about it, and I know Phil's a huge Sandler fan, it was just the first time, because I love Punch Your Own Glove, but uh, this is the first time after about 20 minutes I, I could only see this guy, Howie. It was just this character completely. It wasn't about, oh, the actor gets lost. That's not what it's about. It's just all I could see was this human. Yeah. Well, I feel that way about every Adam Sandler performance. <laughs> I mean, Jack yeah. and Jill is certainly just as transformative as Uncut Gems. But uh, you and me. You and yeah. Fair point. I'm a very, I'm a very, I don't like this thing where people divide Adam Sandler yeah. movies where it's sort of like, oh, his quote-unquote respectable ones, yeah. like Punch Drunk Love and, I don't know, like Spanglish or whatever and, and Uncut Gems. And then they divide that and it's like, you know, oh, I like those, but not, you know, because I actually think, like, you know, I mean, this is getting a little far afield, so I won't, I won't go too far into this. But, I mean, I think Sandy Wexler is, like, one of the great American films of the last five or ten years. Um, it's a great Hollywood movie, for sure. A great Hollywood movie, a great kind of, like, it's like Adam Sandler's King of Comedy, you know, or, or, or something. I have not seen it. It's it's fantastic. And I'm a, I'm with you, Phil. I mean, I'm a big Sand, Sandler fan. Sandman. And, I mean, and they so, you know. literally edit out 90 minutes of me talking about Adam Sandler every <laughs> yeah. episode. Well, so, you and I should just start our own <laughs> podcast that's just on Adam Sandler, we because I think, he's, I think he's the greatest. And I, I am glad that with Uncut Gems, the rest of the world has finally caught on to the fact that this guy is a fantastic actor, an incredible talent. And it is an amazing movie. I mean, it's just like one of the most anxiety-inducing, <sighs> but but hilarious yeah. movies. You know, it's it's very like, clearly the Safdie brothers, they've kind of been, you know, the last couple of movies have been very influenced clearly by like After Hours and stuff like that. But <laughs> they kind of, you know, it almost makes After Hours like, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> feel <laughs> breezy. Calm. Yeah, yeah breezy. it doesn't feel like anything in comparison. Like, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, no, and I think it's interesting too because... I thought I saw the Safties tweet, or or maybe they, I don't know. I know they haven't seen The Object of Beauty, and that Quentin programmed it as a double, so I think that's intriguing that they don't really know 
what they're in for in terms of the second feature. And neither do I. I've never seen it, although I think it has one of my favorite actresses in it. Is, it, is uh, Lolita Davidovich in it? She is. Yeah, I've never seen it. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I, I checked it out, again, also just in prep for this, and, and I can see what he's doing and why he did it. I mean, there's a lot of... Lolita Davidovich is great. I'm a big fan of her, but seeing Malkovich as this sort of, I don't know... He's <laughs> he's basically like a uh, businessman who has made a lot of bad choices, and he and uh, Andy McDowell are like they don't really have a home; they're just moving from hotel to hotel, and and he has a new investment that's about cocoa that may or may not be going bad, and and the other thing that the story hinges on is she has a golden statue that she got as a present, I think, from her ex husband. Her ex, yeah, I think it's her ex husband, played by Peter Riegert, who's also really good in the movie, and I love. Yeah, he's um, great. But then there's a tension uh, the of, you know, they could sell the statue and get some money back to help things. So there's a tension of he needs money, but it's not anywhere near on the level of the anxiety you get from Uncut mm-hmm. Gems. But again, I kind of feel the... It's definitely about people living beyond their means yes, or whatever, but yes. it's definitely a come down after Uncut Gems because yeah. there's no way you could ratchet that shit up it's actually further without that, being dead yeah in that in that respect it's a really nice double i think because it's it's a little calmer and a little more um just not hanging out but just sort of experiencing the characters and it's not quite so fast-paced in, as the as uncut gems is yeah but I, i'm super excited for this double uh josh safty he comes to the new beverly all the time when he's in los angeles he's been emailing with me for a number of years trying nice. to get their films played he's just a huge supporter of what we're doing he like before uncut gems came out he was like talking to us about trying to get played and he's like been huge and trying to get this on the new best screen so i know he's extremely excited he's extremely excited for the q a gem and also what i'm personally excited for is that they're striking this print for us wow so this will be the first time that this print has ever played so this isn't a print that's been making the circuit the awards circuit and has been run to death the screening here on the fifth will be the first time it's run so it should look absolutely fantastic all the more reason to go i I got i got the shipping confirmation today i know that it is on the way so (laughs) i'm excited this, and you, you 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 also wrote a lot of articles for american cinematographer this is one of those ones because it's less trying to be beautiful but this is one where i was hoping it would get a nomination because it's so in opposition to his normal style yeah you know you think of seven a movie like right. seven compared to this that's just unhinged you can it's it's pretty remarkable i can completely agree it should have gotten a nomination for cinematography we're talking but about I, darius kanji now by the yeah. way yeah but i think i think you're right though that when something isn't quote-unquote beautiful like i think a lot of people think of Great cinematography means it's, you know, quote unquote, beautiful. And, you know, to me, it's about what's right for the movie. Yeah. And the cinematography for that movie is so perfect. Mm. Yeah, no, it really is. Clearly a choice. Yeah. yeah. And beautiful in its own way. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Eric Bogosian and Uncut Gems. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. yes. so good. So good. Fantastic. Um, and that's going to lead into uh, February 7th through 9th, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We're going to go back into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I'm super excited for that run. Uh, that Sunday, the 9th, is going to be the Oscars. So. I encourage people to come watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with us that day. I think it'll be a fun one. We'll post updates as the Oscars progress at the concession stand, so that way when you get up to use the bathroom or get more popcorn, you can know what's going on. You can always DVR the Oscars, but you can only see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 35mm at the New Beverly so many times. (laughs) That's right. Uh, well, I definitely want to enter this one. Uh, Michael Tuckner, a director I was not aware of last year, and then I saw uh, both of these and put them in my uh, best of the 70s cult movies, which I don't think I've ever put two films by the same director ever in a list like that. And these are two of my favorite movies of last year that I, I saw for the first time. So to see them back to back is fantastic. One is Fear is the Key. 
uh, and the other is Villain. And Villain I came across because it was on TCM, and I just I taped it in anything with Richard Burton, but it's the Richard Burton performance now in my brain. And, and the, the seed that leads to Sexy Beast. Victor Dankin, I must caution you. All right, that'll do. Do you know what it does started, Tom? If it's fine, he takes his mum down to Brighton, walks around the seafront, up the pier, buys a plate of whelks, then drives home at 30 miles an hour, so she doesn't get hiccups. Well, he can't be all bad then, can he? <coughs> pathetic, pathetic. That's what you are. Pathetic. Ram the rocket! <laughs> When I watch that yeah. film and oh, all the people sure. in it and the style 100%. of it, Ben yeah. Kingsley's first role. Uh, but going back to Fear is the Key, is the prob- it might be the hardest film ever made to talk about without spoiling because the entire film is a spoiler, structurally spoiler. If you even go to IMDb, this movie is ruined for you. So that's all I'm going to uh, say in terms of it has one of the best chase sequences, yeah, has one of the best setups. But- what we can talk about is that the movie basically opens with a kick-ass car chase and, and then it takes a turn. And right. Well, they, that comes after, yeah, after after crimes are committed and yeah. trials. But Barry, basically, look, all you need to know is Barry Newman uh, from Vanishing Point. To me, I, I, I don't know. I think I, I had more fun watching this than Vanishing Point. It might be controversial. Oh come on. Um, I, I, I think I, I think this is really a great film. Like so smart, John Vernon, mm. uh, Susie Kendall from uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and many more, and other films in this calendar. Uh, it's really smart. It's but he, you know, any words you lay on it, you literally have run the risk of ruining the. This such, such a pleasant when you when an entire movie takes a turn it happens so infrequently in cinema that i think where it would be a shame to totally yeah no it, it's so. it's really much better enjoyed cold yeah you know? i think you have to be careful with villain too a little bit I, you a know, little bit a, i mean i there's i don't know I, but it's more of a character study it's more of a character study but there's an aspect to it that when i saw it for the first time like you yeah. on tcm uh there's there's a character churn shall we say that yeah. that movie takes where i was just I went what like that I, I did talk about that on the show because I okay. thought it's also I feel like it's so interestingly progressive at that time you don't have to surprising. bring it up again but, yeah but well yeah. I mean it's I mean it's interesting well, it's, my, it's, yeah. Yeah, to me it helps what sells it you know it's a uh, yeah. you can see these I don't know I, I only, I, the only reason I say that is yeah. I ruined it for my wife I watched it with her again uh-huh. and she was actually very mad at me that I had told her about that <laughs> thing she said like I kind of ruined the experience okay then we won't say it. Yeah. if you haven't heard that but one, it's yeah. a great movie I mean yes. it's absolutely villain is another one of my favorite movies on the calendar and as you say it's the Richard Burton performance he is so good in that movie. And another well, connection, Ian McShane, to uh, Ian McShane's role in Sexy Beast. Yeah. There's a connection there. Yes. That's right. all I'll say. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you saw Boom on our calendar this month uh, with Richard Burton, know that villain is much different. Much different. <laughs> um, also, The Fear is the Key print is going to be an IB Technicolor print. The wow. colors can be extremely vibrant. This is not a film that gets exhibited every day, so I it's encourage also people to check it out. not on Blu-ray. It's got a Region 2 DVD. It's uh, online. You can watch it in SD. So, like, this is a movie yeah. you need to go see an IB Tech. Another selling point, if I believe it's based on uh, an Alistair McLean novel. Yeah. Correct. That's right. So, that Guns was... and Avro and stuff like that. Yeah, it, but... it feels very James Bond, American James Bond to me, that film. Yeah, sure. Uh, with, in terms of fun. But villain is like um, the Vic Dakin character to sell it further. It, it reminds me closest to things like Get Carter. Mm-hmm. And if you love those, that film and this yeah. is unknown to you, just jump in. Yeah. Well, I mean, and another film that opens with a nice, you know, good sequence of what yeah. that character does. Yeah. You know, and the way and the way they do it and how they. 
how they leave other characters yeah. is is pretty yeah. memorable. I gotta say. Yeah. Um, this so, is this is a tremendous double. Yeah, so one of the best on the calendar for yeah, sure, in my opinion. Exciting. And and if you like Barry Newman driving a Dodge Charger in Vanishing Point, you will very much enjoy him driving what a Ford Gran Torino. It's like sixteen minute sequence. Sport. Or yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's just I just rewatched this the other night, and the opening is just so exhilarating that you're just like fuck wow, and then it turns, and you're just like what's happening now, and you just go with it. And and then John Vernon enters. And then John Vernon. You're not, you know, and, and, you know, like you said, uh, uh, Ben Kingsley with hair and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, yep. And also Mark Hoyk wrote a great piece uh, for the New Bev blog on this double bill. And you can listen or you can read it on the New Bev site now. Okay. And then so that was on February 10th. Now we're going to go into uh, Jim Kelly double bill on uh, the 11th. We have Hot Potato from 1976 and Golden Needles from 1974. Which is uh, exciting to me because the, the other thing this calendar has, which I love, is Robert Klaus films. Uh, and, me too. And, Golden, and also you get Joe Don Baker in the lead of anything I'll watch. There's a couple <laughs> Joe Dons in here too. Uh, I haven't seen Hot Potato, but I like Golden Needles quite a lot. Yeah, I, I can't remember Golden Needles now, but I feel like I've seen it. I did just rewatch Hot Potato, and um, I don't, I definitely don't like it as much as Black Belt Jones. It's, Which it's a sequel to. Yeah, it's following up mm. Black Belt Jones. He's playing back Black Belt Jones again. I think if the movie makes any missteps, it is that it doesn't focus wholly on Jim Kelly. Uh, and I, I love just all the stuff with him is great. And I do think, I was telling Elric on the phone, I think it'd make an interesting choice they cast George Mamoli as one of the other characters in the movie. People remember Mean Streets. Uh, he's the character who calls uh, De Niro a mook in, um, in the bar billiard scene. He's a Scorsese regular, kind of heavy set actor. And I, my theory is somebody saw Mean Streets and was like, let's put this guy in as a comedic foil to Jim huh. Kelly. Um, so he's kind of playing a goofball character, and it's intriguing to me just to see him in that role. But uh, the Jim Kelly stuff is great, and uh, I really enjoyed him in it. What do, what do you think about Hot Potato, Phil? I haven't seen Hot Potato, though oh. it's got an excellent poster. Hmm. Um, and we get to, when we get a little further in the calendar, there's going to be a Hot Potato connection to a movie that I have seen. Cool. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, but Golden Needles, what do you remember about it? I saw it actually recently yeah. when we were doing the 70s one. Um, well, it's, I was on a class kick, um, but also Joe Don's fun. It's an international um, thriller. Like, it keeps leaping different countries, starts in China, opens with some a gangbuster scene of uh, somebody uh, being set on fire for the statue. And the statue if it has these needles. It's golden statue. If inserted correctly into a person it will give them a sexual pro- like an old man it kind of almost a get out kind of thing believes it's going to kind of reincarnate you to have sexual power and, and be have vitality but if inserted wrong you die and so I can't remember how uh, Joe Don ends up I think he's in Shanghai or somewhere and well, he's already so virile he, he, he's like just some guy who can get things done and he's you know kind of a, an American expat uh, just floating around kind of a hand solo figure almost in this world which is fun and somebody hires him to find the statue and a lot of it is literally chase sequences through market and through places running away from people. That, that stuff's a little less exciting, but there's some really good sequences in it. I, I remember it being a lot of fun. It wasn't quite at the level of the ones that, the couple that we're about to talk about by mm-hmm. the same director, but uh, probably a fun double. I don't, funnily enough, I don't remember Jim Kelly in it at all, but he must be there, so. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I forgot to mention this earlier when we did the Velvet Vampire in Trouble Every Day, but then that and then Hot Potato and Golden Needles Every Tuesday, our Grindhouse Tuesday's mm-hmm. back. It's a triumphant return for our weekly Grindhouse series. So nice. I am very excited to dig up some underseen and uh, undiscovered gems uh, every week for this. That's fantastic. Um, so we move from that into a very nice uh, Western-ish double. Um, we've got 
This is on the 12th and 13th. We have McCabe and Miss Miller, Altman's film, and Jeremiah Johnson, Sidney Pollack. Yeah. We have IB Technical or Prince of Both. Very nice. I mean, McCabe and Miss Miller is just, um, I mean, what an amazing movie. You know, songs by Leonard Cohen and one of those movies where the soundtrack really... I don't know. It just it flows with the film. Like even though it's a period thing, somehow he works perfectly with it. You know, and it's just beautiful. Vil- Vilmo shot, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So gorgeous, and I an IB Tech print of it. I mean, shit, that's very tempting. I know yeah. you're a big fan of, uh, especially Jeremiah, right? Oh, uh, I'm a huge fan of Jeremiah. I'm a huge fan of both of these movies, but I feel like in a way, like McCabe. Uh, you know, everybody kind of knows McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a great movie. Um, Jeremiah Johnson is also a great movie. I mean, Jeremiah Johnson is almost like if you engineered in a lab a movie that I'm going to like, <laughs> it would be this movie because it's like a Western written by John Milius, directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Robert Redford. Like, yeah. that's like, like, I love all of those things. And then when you put them together, and it's the interesting thing about Jeremiah Johnson is like from an auteurist standpoint, it works as a movie by all three of those people. <laughs> like it is a, it's definitely a John Milius movie. Um, but it's also like sort of interesting, like for, in terms of an actor as an auteur movie, it's a very interesting movie for Robert Redford. Cause he basically plays this guy who decides to go live away from society as a mountain man. And it's sort of, you know, Sidney Pollack has described the theme of the movie as being about the impossibility of living outside of mm-hmm. society because he tries to do that, but things keep, he kind of, you know, keep infringing on him. You know, he makes connections with people, whether he wants to or not or whatever. His name was Jeremiah Johnson. They say he wanted to be a mountain man. Nobody knows whereabouts he come from and don't seem to matter much. He was a young man and ghosty stories about the tall hills didn't scare him none. Bought him a good horse and traps and other truck that went with being a mountain man and said goodbye to whatever life was down there below. This is his story. Robert Redford as Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah Johnson made his way. And it's interesting in the context of Redford's career because Redford, if there's one thing that is more true of, I mean, his movies, like, I think it's like 75% of the movies he's in. He plays a guy who's on the run from something or trying to escape from something or trying to, again, live outside of society's Boundaries. I mean, from even early stuff like Arthur Penn's The Chase, where he's a fugitive, to obviously I like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But then even when he's in a love story, like The Way We Were, or Out of Africa, he's still mm. like a guy trying to get away from her. <laughs> you know, he's still like, I don't want to be pinned down. I don't want to, you know, whatever. He's always, so he's always, you know, that's like clearly something that he, and 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 even up to like Horse Whisper. I mean, it's just like something that clearly he as an actor, you know, was making those choices. Because after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he could pretty much choose whatever he wanted to do. And he was, you know, making those choices. But anyway, this movie is, it's got a great John Milius script with all these, you know, this great kind of like funny mountain man dialogue and stuff, which actually gave Sidney Pollack trouble when the movie went overseas and he had to dub it and subtitle it for other countries because they couldn't figure out what the hell some of these like weird American <laughs> John Milliusisms, you know, what they would be in French or German or something. And How come you ain't been scalped? <laughs> ain't been too lucky, huh? No. This place has been trapped out since 25. What are you doing here, then? I hunt grizz. Grizz? Grizzly bears, pilgrim. I collect the claws. I had one in that thicket back there, ready to shake hands until you come along. I'm sorry, then. That you look. (laughs) Hungry, too, huh? Come on. You know how to skin grizz? I can skin most anything. 
sure are cocky for a starving pilgrim. And that was how Sidney Pollack became friends with Stanley Kubrick. Was you know basically somebody told him you know call Stanley he knows all the best dubbers and he did he called Kubrick and Kubrick's like yeah I know the guy in Germany and I know the guy in France and then that began this twenty five year friendship between mm-hmm. Kubrick and Pollack um, over the phone and then they didn't meet in person until Kubrick cast him in Eyes Wide Shut. Wow, uh, just like weird little side thing. But so it's got this great million script with filled with all these details about living outside and living in the old west. I mean the, the great thing about McCabe and Mrs Miller and Jeremiah Johnson they're both like great winter western. It's like they are. I, I recommend if you go to this double feature, uh, you bring a coat because you will feel cold watching these movies. <laughs> they cool. really give you a sense of like just how awful it must have been to be you know, to live during these times and stuff. But but it's just yeah, it's great. It's a great uh, Redford performance. I mean, in a way, you know, com- considering the Milius script, you could almost say he's a little uh, like miscast. Like he's almost a little too much of a you know, handsome movie star or something. But again, I think that it's, maybe I just like movies, like going back to Velvet Vampire, maybe I just like movies that have like weirdly juxtaposed odds, things, yeah. you know, but but he's, you know, he's great. And it's and it's an interesting Western. The other interesting thing about both of those movies is McCabe, Mrs. Miller and, and Jeremiah Johnson, they both have elements of traditional, very traditional Westerns and yet are both so much movies of their time. I mean, and this kind of ties back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because something I think is, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, I always say like, you know, a good period movie is about both the time in which it takes place and the time in which you're watching it, which is definitely true of that movie. And then a great period movie, and we'll find this out years from now with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but a great period movie is one that uh, is about the time in which it takes place, the time in which it was made, and the time in which you're watching it. Mm. And I feel like McCabe and Mrs. Miller is like, like if you watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller today, uh, just the sort of critique of capitalism and everything in that movie is so resonant. And Jeremiah Johnson, in terms of it being a movie of its time, is this kind of classical Western, but it's also like a movie, you know, it's a time when people were kind of talking about dropping out and stuff like that. And so it's, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling here, but but both great movies. This is another one of the double features, especially if they're IB Tech prints um, that I would, this is, I would say, is a not miss double feature. Yeah. And also, if anybody's familiar with uh, the meme gif. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. That pushes in on Redford and everyone thinks it's Zach Galifianakis. That is from uh, Jeremiah Johnson. Yes. yes. So see yeah. see where that came from. Yes. Also, and also, this is the second movie that Redford and Pollock made together out of, I think, maybe seven. Um, and it's one of the great actor-director collaborations in movies. I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's like up there with Marty and De Niro or whoever. I mean, I, I think... Um, this is sort of an early after this movie. There, there's a streak where they just make a ton of great movies together. Three Days of the Condor, Way We Were, Electric Horseman, which is another movie that falls into that Redford archetype and stuff. And anyway, it's just uh, it's a great it's a it's a, it's it's great a moment in film history, and it's just great for its own sake as an adventure film. I had forgotten about the Milius script, so um, I need to revisit. I didn't get a chance to before this show, but I remember liking it. And if, like me, you weren't a big Warren Beatty... When I was a kid, I wasn't a big Warren Beatty fan, and I remember watching Reds and not really... Oh, that's probably above my head anyway, but it wasn't until this movie where I f- just really understood the appeal. I think this character is so great, and it, it in a way, kind of like Uncut Gems for me, just that way of an uh, access point where yeah. a character is is underwater. It's so hard watching out, those you know? characters where you just didn't want them to get out of their own way. And yeah. That's, yeah, McCabe, that's a great but comparison. Beatty's I hadn't great. thought about like, He's yeah. so good and I, it was totally my in with him and after that I saw Shampoo and was like, okay, yeah. totally changed how I felt about him. Have you rewatched actor. Reds, by the way? Reds I haven't rewatched. I mean, that's probably really like 14 or something. Nicholson like that. in that movie yeah, I remember him will being make you go, oh shit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, because you already like him. But yeah. anyway, Reds, Reds is great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess this is. We a, don't have to get too far. We don't far have to get too far into Reds, but it's it, Reds is interesting because, you know, people always talk about movies like novels on film and stuff. Yeah. Reds is actually like a movie that approximates, like, what and finds the cinematic core. It's not based on a novel, yeah. but it's like the cinematic corollary of what a novel is. Yep. It's a really rich, yeah. beautiful movie. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, so we go from that wonderful double bill uh, into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the 14th through the 16th. And if you haven't uh, seen it with the one you love, bring them on Valentine's Day. Maybe we'll do something special. Very nice. And uh, then we come out of that into a Robert Klaus double bill. Should uh, we call this the most pure cinema double bill ever? Because one is your one of your favorites and one is literally my favorite from la- that I saw last year. I, lo- I love both. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely very pure cinema. So we've got The Pack from 1977. Speaking of Joe Don Baker. Joe Don versus dogs. Joe Don dogs. as a biologist. A flesh-eating mammal. They have been kept in a domesticated state by man since prehistoric times. When abandoned by man, left to fend for themselves and deprived of food, they will resort to the most primitive means of survival. Given no other choice, they form the pack. Most of those dogs were just tourist pets until a few weeks ago. You better speak up or get! The old man was the first to feel it. Then Tom saw it. Did the warden kill that dog? One of them. Are you saying there's more than one? Then Millie came face to face with it. Last summer, they were pets. Now, they are predators. The right move may mean survival, while each moment brings them closer to death. The pack. They're not pets anymore. Um, And then Darker Than Amber on 16 uh, from 1970. This is on the 17th of February. Yeah, this is, I'm really excited about this double bill. I mean, for one, Darker Than Amber is rare as fuck. Yeah. Uh, When when we talked about it, I saw a really crappy DVD. I had wanted to see it forever. I think the YouTube clip uh, version was slightly better than the DVD I was watching. And either way, it wasn't great. But this is one of the most entertaining movies I've ever seen, period. Rod Taylor is a beach bum. It would actually be a great double with beach bum. Oh, yeah. Like, that would be a Fuck great yes. double feature. Um, but, you know, Rod Taylor is a beach bum PI. And uh, the opening sequence, uh, Susie Kendall again uh, coming back. As, uh, somebody has attached weights to her ankles and thrown her off a bridge. And she falls right next to their little fishing boat. And they save her life. Uh, and you find out that person who threw her off was none other than William Smith, who oh, yeah. uh, the Hollywood man himself who's been getting a lot of love this last year and it just goes in these bonkers like there's these crazy like weightlifters who are almost like a gang and the investigation he starts kind of going on when she disappears again is just utterly fascinating and he's never been more charming like yeah do you like making me small loan sure help yourself there's some money in that dresser by the bed try the top drawer there's a couple of hundred I think 277 that enough Oh, 50 will do. I'll pay back later. I won't miss it. I've got my own, you know. Came in bits and pieces, but it makes up pretty fat. Guess it's time to dig it out. Oh, yeah? And then what? Oh, I'll work that out later. If I can just hang in till dark. Suppose you've got taxis round here. Yeah, well, sure. Wait a minute. This money, is it, is it where you can grab it and run? Yeah, in my apartment. But not where anybody could find it, unless they had a year's lease. Why? Well, don't you think it'd be a good idea if I went and got it for you? 
Uh-uh. Don't like your rates. No, no, seriously. Why don't I go and get it and I'll bring it back to you, all of it. We'll talk about it later. No, why not now? Because now, right now, it's the best of life. I heard that someplace. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of those movies that your heart breaks a little when you read about it and you go, oh, this was meant to be a once a year series with this detective It's character. based on the Travis McGee the, yeah, series Travis of books. So. And you're just like, oh, I wanted to see that and this film you know, didn't do any business. But um, as Soderbergh talks about at length, the fight scene at the end of this film is, is so crazy that uh, while I was watching, I was just like, this is one of the craziest fight scenes I've ever seen, but also beautifully staged. And then you start reading going, oh no, they were really trying to kill each other by the end as Rod Taylor versus William Smith in an out-and-out brawl. And you're like, oh, it, that changes how you kind of approach it. But Soderbergh said it was one of the most electric things he'd ever seen on cinema. Yeah, This movie is unmissable. This is my pick. If a single movie is a pick of the month, this movie is just like, I don't know what the print's like, but it, you know. So the reason why we're screening this one on 16 is because uh, purportedly this is going to be the uncut version. So it's going to have Ooh. the full bone break. Uh, oh. All the 35 prints that uh, we were able to locate were the PG-rated re-release oh, from the oh, 70s. Wow. So this ostensibly is going to be the full, uh, the full most extreme version. And if you've seen Shit. the fight scene and They Live and thought that that fight scene could not be topped, <laughs> Good comparison. I yep. have to point out that Darker Than Amber is <laughs> the movie that does it. Yeah. Um, but For let's sure. get back to the pack because yeah. I'm a huge fan. So yeah, you so mentioned yeah. quickly that it's a uh, Joe Don Baker versus Dogs. Yes. It's basically uh, he and people, various people live on like a vacation island, uh, people who... <laughs> Such a weird setup. Who, yeah. <laughs> who, who hang out there, you know, for summers or whatever. Like, they leave their pets behind because I guess they don't love their pets. And then now these uh, abandoned dogs are hungry and the last thing that they can eat on this island is man. So yeah. And there's the saddest scene at the beginning with this oh, undescript family. Horrible. And they're t- the guy, the father has to take his son out to tie the dog <laughs> up just enough so that he won't catch them as they leave. <laughs> it's just so sad. Um, yeah, my uh, one of the movies that I introduced my daughter to animal attack movies with was the pack and she absolutely fucking loves the pack hmm. it's legit one of her favorite movies um some great dog acting too the lead dog the kind of uh, yellowish one the face on that is well, just I always mean, so angry and it's a tough thing because there definitely is some stuff that maybe um you know the animal rights people might not be excited about i'm sure there's def- they're definitely doing something to dogs faces where they're making them look more vicious mm. and maybe uh i don't know how to the doing. or something yeah. yeah i mean you know who knows but regardless uh I, there are some really great menacing dogs in this movie and they they really sell the the scariness of this island and i do like the idea that it's an island and they're trapped there and you know, and again, I like the idea that Joe John Baker is a biologist. That's to me and a romantic lead. I love it when he's yes. a romantic lead. It's yes. fun to watch. It's it's, it's quite it's hilarious. So charismatic. But yeah, um, Richard B. Shull is in there. He's one of my favorite character actors from this period. And there's a couple other faces you'd recognize. It's uh, just full of like everybody that you've ever seen in like a 70s TV yeah, movie or totally. something like that. Yeah. It is. Uh, it's a blast, and not on Blu-ray. Definitely a. I'm sure incredible with a crowd. I bet you've seen it with a crowd. I've never seen it with a crowd. Oh, I tried to play a print a number of years ago and. Warner Brothers was unable to supply a print. This time they were able to dig one out of their deep vault. Nice. So I well, am looking fantastic. fucking forward to it. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite double bills on here. So next up we go to... Uh, February 18th, we have a Grindhouse Rescue Missions uh, <laughs> sort of a double bill with Skyriders from 1976 and Force 5 from 1981. And that's Robert Klaus directed, Again, correct? Yeah. It is, and Force 5 is Anthony sort of a... Cock. 
is a uh, Force Five is a remake of Hot Potato, which we just talked about. Oh. Really? Yes. Wow, I enjoyed Force Five considerably more. That's really interesting. I guess I see it now. Yeah, now that you say it. Um, but yeah, Sky Riders, Anthony Hickok directed. I know Tarantino's a big fan of him. Um, yeah, it's a cool movie. It's basically uh, Robert Culp plays an industrialist who, where does it take place? It's like Greece or something? Yeah, it's uh, someplace like that. We actually played this film uh, a couple years ago during our Robert Culp uh, retrospective. And in Athens, Greece, the wife and children of a rich American industrialist are kidnapped and held captive in an isolated mountain monastery. I will do nothing until I get proper food and treatment for my children. An impenetrable fortress 5,000 feet above the city. There is no way to approach it without being killed, except from above. Now, the death-defying sport of hang gliding is the ultimate movie adventure, Skyriders. An astounding film of aerial escape and rescue. It is the one adventure that soars above them all. James Colburn, Susanna York. Robert Culp, Charles Aznavour, and the Skyriders. Men and women who can fight and fly. Rated PG. This is a weird movie. <laughs> um, yeah, if, if you ever thought that hang gliding would make for a great uh, action film, then Skyriders is for you. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Here's the thing. I will say that, again, another one I rewatched for the show here. Um, it opens with his family being kidnapped in a really like eye-opening scene. Uh, who's his who plays his wife? Um, Susan. Shit. Susanna York. But um, so his wife and two kids are kidnapped by this group that look like they're something out of heat. Like they have the hockey masks on, they have machine guns, they kill the entire staff uh, on their way out, and they take them hostage and ask for like five million dollars. There's some kind of a terrorist sect basically and then we cut to james coburn who weirdly is the father of the boy like his wife uh susanna york was married to him briefly and and he also is just sort of a dude that gets stuff done he goes on these little missions and so he wants to get in and rescue his son but also cares about the wife it's his ex-wife and and so they they hold up at this monastery i forget it's like some it's kind like of like a mountaintop monastery exactly it's some kind of famous monastery and it's sort of an impenetrable fortress and he gets the idea watching this what is it a their hang gliding show and he talks the people in the show into like helping him out to get into the fortress sort of and so it kind of goes from there and i would say it has both these films what i like about them is they have a really exhilarating last 30 minutes like really solid you know um the whole siege of the thing at the end of um skyriders is great and it, it just goes from there uh force five i i really enjoyed too it has benny the jet or and i'm sure you know some of the other actors that i may not be familiar with some of the martial arts folks got a lot of people it does it's it's sort of, it's sort of one of those things where it's like uh getting a team together uh to go on sort of a mission kind of a guys on a mission thing not just one or two or three or four but five deadly martial arts commandos force five He has the leadership. He has the strength. He has the speed. He has the skill. And she has everything else. 
What I need is a woman who can think and fight and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Force Five, starring five of the world's top-ranking martial arts experts. Joe Lewis, three-time international karate grand champion. Richard Norton, world's foremost martial arts weapons expert. Benny the Jet Yurkidis, world full contact welterweight champion. Sonny Barnes, California heavyweight karate champion. Master Bong Suhan, eighth degree black belt. In Force Five. But I just thought it was fun, like a fun... There's some great opening bits of like getting the team together where we get to see each of the persons that they're bringing in. There's like a woman and Benny the Jet and a few others and each one of them gets a scene where we see them beating the shit out of somebody before they get pulled in. So like it's just a great and there's a great scene where Benny the Jet like quits his job. He works at like a market, an outdoor market and he's selling like clothes or something and he's just basically like fuck this i'm out and then gets in a fight on the way out of the marketplace and it's it's really fun um but yeah it's it's got a very young amanda wiss it's it's sort of like a cult that she's part of that they they're they're trying to infiltrate this cult uh and and get her out but the the guy who runs the cult is also like really good at martial arts and so it's it gets complicated but um but yeah the last 20 minutes of this movie i really enjoyed i thought they were really solid these are the kind of doubles that i like the thing i like most about new bev is like when you can show up to something and you haven't seen or heard of either and you just go i, I have no idea what i'm in for i'm gonna watch these two movies i love that feeling i think this will be a lot of fun that's and, me with the i haven't seen either no i haven't so. seen either and i see that charles as as Navarre is the detective in the first one I'm like yes don't shoot the piano player <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah, it's great. This is this is both 16 looks like. Yes. Yeah. And then we have a uh, Donald E. Westlake double, which is pretty cool. Uh, we have the Hot Rock from 1972 by Peter Yates and Cops and Robbers uh, from 1973. And I haven't seen either of these. Yeah. Uh, you? Yeah, I'm a big Hot Rock fan. I mean, I just again, getting into the you know another Redford movie from that era that's. Uh, quite good. I'm also a big Peter Yates fan, yeah. and this is kind of the period where he was doing. He had this like sort of compressed period where he did a bunch of crime movies in a row. It's like Robbery, Bullet, this one, uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle, yeah. which is one of the oh. greatest movies ever made. So good. Um, and then he kind of goes, and then he sort of becomes this journeyman, like different, you know, The Deep and Breaking Away, and you know, Kroll, Kroll and <laughs> Innocent Man. But I think he's a really wonderful he's director. A really good director yeah. um, and this one is this is the first movie based, I think, based on one of Donald Westlake's mm-hmm. Dortmunder. Uh, books which they've made weirdly they've made several movies Dortmunder's never played by the same guy it's never the hmm. same filmmakers like after this they did um, Bank Shot Bank Shot with George C. Scott there's also one called uh, like I think it's is it, uh, Jimmy the Kid where yeah, Paul Lamatt <laughs> is Dortmunder and Gary Coleman's in it yeah um, yep. that's kind of the low huh. end. and and then even there's that movie What's the Worst That Could Happen oh. Martin Lawrence plays Dortmunder oh crazy hmm. um, but, he's, but he has a different name and that's like a whole weird thing with Donald Westlake is he you know he had these like franchises like because he also had the Parker books, you know. Which, Point like, Blank point, is what, based yeah. on. But like he did this weird thing where he, like Dortmunder, sometimes he's called Dortmunder and sometimes he's not. Like I don't know if he is in Bankshot. I think George C. Scott might have a different character name. I think that. you're right. And with the Parker movies, 
in all of them, I think. Never. He's named something else. Like, he's Walker in Point Blank. He's uh, Porter in Payback, the Mel Gibson version. Mm. Um, the outfit, he's something different. Like, he's always... So, like, it's this weird thing that Westlake... Like, with I know with the uh, Parker books, it was contractual. Yes. Like, for he some He controlled reason. the name. Exactly. Yeah, he yeah. controlled the name. So, it's always somebody different. But, um, but anyways, this is like a Dortmunder thing. It's, you know, caper, comedy, screenplay by William Goldman, who, yes. uh, you know, I'm actually... Just I'll, this is probably the most controversial Uh-oh. thing I'll say in this podcast. Yeah. I'm not a William Goldman fan in Uh-oh. general, but I have to give credit where credit is due on this movie because I actually think this is a movie where the adaptation is better than the book. He actually, or not, I don't know if it's better, but he does the right things for it as a movie. Like he streamlines it really well. And the, the, the conceit of the movie is there's this jewel they're trying to steal and they kind of have to keep re-stealing it. <laughs> um, and, and so like it keeps getting out of their hands for various reasons. And in the book, I think they steal it six times. In the movie, he kind of streamlines lines it down to four and he gets rid of one of the gang members it's sort of a good model of concision but um you know but william goldman also i mean he he, i mean i'll just you know i'm going to use this forum uh to make my because i am because i think he just the thing about william goldman as a screenwriter um is you know he has he's he's held in this esteem for all of these asinine pronouncements he made like you know like nobody knows anything which of course is a stupid you know is is nonsense uh you know a lot of people know a lot of things in hollywood but one of the stupid pronouncements he made uh in reference to this movie was uh, he said that a movie star doesn't ask questions they answer them so like in this movie there's a lot of scenes where george uh, george siegel is like asking robert redford like how are we going to do this how are we going to do this and then robert redford's like well here's how we're going to do it and here's this and this and this it's good and it's bad there's a guaranteed return and that's good but the guarantor's a Musa, and a Musa's a rookie, and that's bad. But it's an easily transportable object, and that's good. Only it's in a rotten position in the museum, 30 steps to the quickest exit, and that's bad. And the glass over the stone, that's bad too, because that's glass with metal mixed in it, bulletproof, shatterproof. But the locks don't look impossible, three, maybe five tumblers, but there's no alarm system, and that's the worst, because that means no one's going to get lazy watching. Knowing the alarm will pick up their mistakes, which means the whole thing has got to be a diversion job. And that's good and that's bad, because if the diversion's too big, it'll draw pedestrians. And if the diversion's not big enough, it won't draw that watchman. Tom Monroe, I don't know where the hell you are. What the hell you say? Just tell me, will you plan the job? It's what I do. Which actually works fine in this movie, but I always find it ironic that William Goldman, who won an Oscar for writing All the President's Men, says that movie stars don't ask questions. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just such a stupid... He just... Anyway, he says all these, you know, completely stupid things, but... Um, well, I thought he... Yeah, I thought he did... I, I know he worked closely with Westlake on this adaptation, and I haven't read the book, but I think this movie's got some really great, funny moments, funny dialogue yeah. between all the characters. I mean, you have George Siegel, you have Ron Liebman... Damn it, I forget the other guys. I and forgot James too, but yeah. uh, and then Moses Gunn and Zero, Mar- and Zero is Mustel in there. is yeah. a really great part. Yeah. yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah, so it's just I remember liking it pretty good, and then I rewatched it again, and I was like, oh, this is better than I remember. Yeah, and part of it is the interactions and the dialogue. The George C. The George Siegel Robert Redford stuff is great. I mean, it's it's it almost. Um, I mean, the first time he sees him, he punches him in the face. Yeah, yeah, the two of them are really. It's like it's there's we have coming up you know, uh, later, some other great buddy movies. And I feel like Hot Rock is kind of a caper movie, but it's also kind of a great buddy movie. And definitely, uh, yeah, definitely highly recommend that one. It's also interesting to play in the same month as Uncut Gems because it's also about somebody, you know, people who uh, are trying to get a rock, a gem or whatnot, and uh, keep fucking it up Mm -hmm. in various ways. 
Um, you know, funny enough, another connection to the Safties. Um, Elric turned me on to a podcast uh, that the Safties did with Nick Pinkerton for the Film Comment podcast and it's just them talking about new york movies and it's legit one of my favorite po- i mean it's a yeah, it's very one of the best things i heard this year. very young year but it's one of my favorite podcasts i've heard this year so go listen to that but one of the movies that comes up is cops and robbers mm. and the safties are fans of that one of them is at least um so i thought that was neat that that's also playing this month these two men are new york city police officers they earn 43 dollars a day risking their lives as cops Today, they'll earn $10 million, risking their lives as robbers. What is this? It's a robbery. What do you think it is? You want bearer bonds. $10 million worth. Nothing over $100,000, nothing under twenty. Who are they? I swear I don't know. Who called them? Elliot Kastner presents Cops and Robbers, starring Joseph Bologna and Cliff Gorman. Because that podcast was all about like New York City and the geography being accurate. Movies where the geography actually feels real to people who live there. And so yeah. they were really dialing in. And I thought that was a really fun kind of approach to it. But that was one of the films. I hadn't seen that film, but it kind of made you want to look into it. Yeah, I couldn't um, tell what genre, what tone it is. It looks the poster looks comic. It is. It's it's mo. It's yeah. It's it's leans comedy, mm. but there's definitely some drama to it. It's about two disillusioned New York cops, played by Cliff Gorman and Joe Bologna, and they you know decide at some point that they're gonna. Why shouldn't they rob mm. something? They have access that a lot of people don't have, and so they they go for bearer bonds and they find this place that they're gonna rob, and you know things get complicated as they always do in these movies. And, um, it's, it's a neat movie. I think I like the hot, hot rock slightly more, but, uh, I like these two together. I think Cliff Gorman, I've definitely seen him in other movies, but he's really good in this. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I kind of wish I'd seen him a little bit more and maybe I need to seek out some of his stuff. But, um, Bologna is just great. Like, uh, this also has Joe Spinell as one of the heavies, like, and- yeah, right? So you you're know it's sort of in New York. Yeah. And Martin Cove and Randy Jorgensen, who is in all kinds of uh, fucking uh, cop movies and is an actual cop and, you know, was in The French Connection, is sort of part of the legacy of those movies. Uh, Dolph Sweet is really good. And then, of course, uh, PCP favorite John P. Ryan mm. has a really good role as, like, sort of a crime kingpin in this movie. So uh, it's definitely worth a look. I think this is a really fun double bill for sure. Uh, so we go from that on the 19th and 20th into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, from the 21st to the 23rd. And then we move into a uh, double bill of Man for All Seasons from 1966 and The Mission from 1986 on the 24th of February. Double bill of films uh, written by Robert Bolt. Yes, I was so excited for this for a couple of reasons. I mean, yeah, Robert Bolt, who Quentin name-checked when he got his Golden Globe for screenwriting, um, you know, one of the great screenwriters ever. And these are both movies I was so happy to see these were going to be on the big screen because they're both... The thing about Robert Bolt, you know, very obviously, he's, he's very literary, great dialogue, all that kind of stuff. And these two movies, Man for All Seasons is interesting because it's, you know, I think based on his play, right? And... Uh, it's so it's very dialogue driven, very character driven, but also really demands to be seen on the big screen. Like it's an example of a great 
like a play they make cinematic. The cinematographer on it was uh, Ted Moore, who shot the first four James Bond movies, and then he did three more Bond movies after that. Uh, he did Orca, which I think is playing as we speak yep, at the is, New yeah. Beverly, <laughs> uh, and he shot Clash of the Titans. So he was like a great choice. He like really brings this visual dynamism to that movie. Um, and I think he might have won the Academy Award for it for cinematography, in fact. And then the mission uh, is one of my favorites. You know, Roland Jaffe, um, Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons. A movie that weirdly I feel like is kind of not screened that often and kind of not remembered that well, even though when it came out, I mean, it was huge. It was nominated for like seven Academy Awards or something, you know, including Best Picture and Best Director won for Chris Menges for the cinematography, one of the greatest cinematographers around. Um, and it's, you know, again, like a very sort of literary Robert Bolt character driven epic. Uh, that I think really, really rewards big screen viewing. I know I've said that about like seven movies so far, but this one, I really mean it. You got to see it <laughs> on the big screen. It's got a great Morricone score. Too. Oh, yes. great Morricone yeah, score really for good. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know this is, uh, I'm not as familiar. I, oh, sorry. You got something. Oh, else? I was just going to say this is, I just was looking at my notes that I took when, about the mission. When uh, Something also that's fun about it is speaking of, you know, we're talking about George Memley, uh, speaking of like random <laughs> Scorsese uh, peripheral actors, the mission has a great supporting part by Chuck Lowe, who was Maury in Goodfellas. Oh, my God. Um, who is an actor that is almost exclusively in Robert De Niro movies. And I found out, doing a little bit of research on him, that it's because he was Robert De Niro's real estate broker. <laughs> and De Niro would just keep putting him in movies. So he's in, like, Goodfellas. He's in King of Comedy. He chokes him he's out in, with a phone he's in, Yeah, he's in the, the, the remake of Night in the City with De Niro. Uh, he's oh, also in an episode of The Sopranos, I think. So he did, he did and he ended, like, Law & Order, SVU or something. So he's done a couple non-De Niro things. But basically, he's just in there. But he's really good in the mission. And it's funny seeing Maury in like an epic period piece yeah. from like the 1700s. And also Liam Neeson in it in a sort of dry run for his silence character as like a mm. Jesuit <laughs> uh, priest. So Maury's wigs don't come off. Cool. Yeah. Um, and A Man for All Seasons is going to be screening from a very rare original Ivy Technicolor print. It's I have a weird be... memory of that being one of Kevin Smith's favorite movies. It is. So. It's one of his like five all time favorite movies. Okay. There we go. Um, but yeah, that one also won. So it won a bunch of Oscars. So Best Picture. Uh, best Actor for Paul Schofield, uh, Best Director for Fred Zinnemann, Best Screenplay for Robert Bolt, and then uh, Best Cinematography for Ted Moore, and then Best Costume Design. Um, so, yeah. Damn. Some serious business there. Um, Couldn't so, be more different than that. I was just going to say, so we go from <laughs> prestige to maybe not quite, Grindhouse but Kung Fu. certainly an entertaining double bill on the 25th of Super Fuzz from 1980 and Death Promise from 1977. And Super Fuzz is directed by uh, only the second greatest director of spaghetti westerns, uh, Sergio, Sergio Corbucci. And I will tell the story because it, it tells you the reach of uh, Quentin's film is I teach freshmen and they have to choose a director uh, to do a, a directorial or tourist study on. And usually it's who you think it would be. It's Wes Anderson and it's uh, Tim Burton. Oh, like there's always multiple Tim Burton. And this year somebody said Sergio Capucci and I looked at them and I said, have you seen any Sergio Capucci? And they go, no, not yet. <laughs> but no. I And I said, and why did you choose? And they go, I really love this movie once more in Hollywood. And so, they actually did a study, and, they, and it was a pretty good study. It was kind of exciting to see them pick a director they didn't know that well and get into it. Did and they include Superfuzz in the paper? Uh, they did not. Oh, they, 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 no, they were, they it was very up. much the Western. So this, uh, but so we get Superfuzz and uh, Robert Warmflash's Death Promise. Phil, what's your <laughs> elevator pitch for Superfuzz? How would you describe <laughs> it? Well, I, my pitch for this double bill is it is it's the double bill that has the two best theme songs you will ever hear <laughs> yes. at the Grindhouse. So Fuck yeah. this is where Brian cuts in like a little bit of each theme song. Nice. Gotta do it. Yeah. 
Well, you got to do it. <laughs> I know. I, I did. I did. Um, but yeah, so it's it's about a cop who gets exposed to what? I forget what he gets, what turns him into this super cop. Do you, it says red powder. <laughs> oh, it's red powder. Okay. I haven't seen this one. I've seen, I've seen, De- I've seen Death Promise. I, I've definitely I like seen it. Hill movies. No, I, I've definitely seen it, and it is sort of goofy in that Italian way, but it's a movie that I know is a cable staple hmm. back in the day, so I think a lot, a lot of people have fond memories of this movie because they saw it because it's unforgettable it's just so strange and funny and weird that once you see it and that theme song definitely like you're in (laughs) once you hear that you're totally in um and then death promise i can't remember i I think i've seen it man death promise is one of the best 70s (sighs) grindhouse exploitation (laughs) revenge action martial arts uh, movies with of rats all time. Uh, <laughs> Isn't it like they have a, a problem promise. with their landlord? Yeah, so basically, landlords suck. Um, <laughs> yes. Fuck landlords, yeah. and uh, we're gonna take revenge on these evil consortium of landlords. Gotcha. And with fantastic jumpsuits, yellow jumpsuits. It's it's pretty <laughs> it, wild. I bought this incredible. one from one of those. Uh, when you go to the horror shows or any of these kind of shows, and you have the one person selling the DVDs of the out of print titles, this is the one I bought last year. Nice. I was very excited. Not a very good copy, so I'd much rather watch it again. Yeah, here. there's a. I think there's a crappy version on Amazon Prime, but Probably, you need yeah. To yeah I think Code Red put it out on DVD. But uh, if people who uh, have listened to this podcast before, sometimes I give out uh, the ultimate fill awards, <laughs> and Death <laughs> Promise is absolutely a ten out of ten fill. Nice. So right. if you know. Uh, my taste or my flavor <laughs> of uh, film going, this one is a t- is totally wild. And <laughs> I feel like telling you any of the wild stuff will ruin the surprises because every time you think it can't get better, it fucking does. <laughs> and it opens with the best theme song ever and gets better from there. So <laughs> Very nice. Um, this will be a hard double bill to beat when I uh, pick my favorite at the end of the month. Uh-huh. And then the next double bill, we could just probably skip over. I don't think anyone Fuck has off. any. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have off. a feeling a few people have something to say about uh, the pairing of Freebie and the Bean by Richard Rush uh, and Busting from Peter Himes from 74. This is on the 26th and 27th. This has got to be one of the best buddy cop doubles Fucking you will see. Gold. <laughs> Fucking gold. Do you want to lead off with Freebie and the Bean? Sure. I mean, Freebie and the Bean, 1974, uh, directed by Richard Rush with Alan Arkin and James Caan is kind of the both template for the buddy cop movies that would follow and yet uh, unlike any of them. I mean, it is so anarchistic and it's just the the pure unadulterated joy in that movie that comes from just destroying things from bad taste. I mean, it's it's a movie you know, it, it makes me think sort of of Mel Brooks's comment about, you know, when the producers rising below vulgarity or whatever. Freebie and the Bean is a movie that rises below vulgarity. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, the opening of the movie is like them pouring garbage, oh, the cop so pouring like a garbage can into the trunk of their car to sift through. And it kind of sets the tone. But it's really, you know, a lot of movies, I think, are kind of unthinkable without this movie, like the Lethal Weapon movies, you know, The Last Boy Scout. A lot of these movies, the dynamic kind of comes from Freebie and the Bean. It really set the standard. And still kind of 
did it the best, I yeah. think. I mean, those the just the the rapport between Arkin and uh, James Caan is fantastic. The peripheral supporting characters, I mean, just filled with one great colorful mm. supporting player after another. Sit down. Both of you sit down. I, I, I would I would like to ask you just one more question before I have you both committed. Why did you arrest Red Myers and tip him off when you got the whole thing sitting in your laps? You couldn't wait until Monday. No, sir. See? There's a problem, a small problem. We have a problem. little problem in that regard, sir. It's a small, small problem, problem, sir, but... And, and that is that uh, Red Myers may not be alive on Monday, sir. There's a contract out on, sir, from Detroit professionals. Kills. So we, gotta, they, we have a major problem. They want to kill him. It's a huge problem. I mean, how do you deal with the monsters? We don't have a problem. We don't have one major problem. You, you know why we don't have a problem? I'm going to tell you why we don't have a problem. There's no problem here. Red Myers will be alive by Monday. You know why Red Myers will be alive by Monday? Because you boys are going to keep him alive until Monday. That's what this office wants you to do. Unless you like fish. I don't mean to eat, I mean to guard. Excuse me. Cut. Guard. 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 Fish. Sir, if I, um, you know, if I could be bold enough to, um... I mean, what if we do keep him alive until Monday? Are you trying to make a deal with me, Freebie? No, he's, no. Yeah, he's just only asking... <laughs> well, it's just, just a kind a of question. A, uh, he's just asking a question. That's all it was. I like that. Oh. No, he's only he's just asking. Just, I didn't mean that. You'll have the gratitude of all the people of this great state. Well, that's what? all, you know, that's, that's all we... could ask him. That's all we want. That's... Forward, that's... Uh, please get out of my office. Sir? He wants us to get out of and the car chase sequences, I mean, I almost hesitate. You know, I feel like people, you have to see it to believe it. Because you say, oh, it's got great car chases. And it's like, eh, you know, car chases, so what? This movie, <laughs> I mean, they destroy the fucking city yeah. in this. Like, you watch this movie now and just don't know how. I just sit in awe every time. Like, how did they possibly do this? Who let them do this? How were people not killed doing this? How much money did this movie cost? Yeah. Especially a city like San Francisco, which it's is a, scary yeah. to drive in anyway because yeah. of the yeah. steep hills. No, anarchistic is a great word for it in terms of like how crazy it gets yeah. and how much action. It's like a pretty heavy action movie for a comedy. And yet, it's, yeah, it's a heavy movie for, action movie for comedy, yet the the two are so complimentary. Like sometimes Absolutely. you see action comedies where it's like the comedy stops for the action or vice yeah. versa. This movie doesn't do that. And it's perfectly paced so that you're not, you're energized but not exhausted. Like it knows when to take a pause from the action. And when it does, it's for these like hilarious digressions involving things like Alan Arkin's marriage. Oh, and, that stuff is gold also. Yeah. So good. Just his stuff. And his, he's married to... Um, Oh, oh, oh gosh, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Valerie Harper. Valerie Harper, yeah. yeah. And he just there's some great conversations he has with her because oh, he suspects her of cheating on him, and it goes yeah. some great places. Some but, of the great dialogue writing, oh, and I, and I don't know who like how the credits for the movie. I don't know like where the credit is really due. There's several a few writers on it. Richard Rush supposedly rewrote a lot of it, but one of the writers is Floyd Muttrix, who's going to come up again. Nice. Uh, but just a a great movie and a great crowd pleaser. Like this is a fun one. In terms of if you want to see something with an audience, I mean, mm. this is a movie you want to, if you haven't yeah. seen it, you want to discover it with an audience because it is a jaw dropper. Yeah. But and both it's both films. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. in terms of comic timing and um, kind of chemistry yes, between yes. two actors, unlikely pairing, I would say, yeah. with yeah. Blake and uh, Gould. Blake and Gould, yeah. It's, it's definitely. And Khan and Arkin is not yeah, the first thing you'd think of either, but they're great. And well, and yeah, and Blake and Gould in Busting, originally, actually, Ron Liebman from Hot Rock was oh, cast nice. in the Robert Blake role. And they, I think they even started shooting with him. And then, like, Peter Hyams and Elliot Gould kind of looked, they knew the chemistry just wasn't happening. Mm. And so they replaced him. I mean, I love Robert Ron Blake. Liebman, but, yeah. but Blake is 
pretty pretty fantastic and busting. Yeah, yeah. Both films very like if you want to say un PC. I mean, they're definitely not. There's there's casual more than casual racism. There's some really racy stuff and busting. I mean, they're vice cops. You know, it's the underbelly of Los Angeles in the most direct way. (laughs) Yeah, Freebie and the Bean. You definitely have to go into knowing that you know there's there's a certain amount of homophobia in it. I mean, busting. I actually argue is not homophobic. Like there's sort of a critique of it that it, it, it was kind of criticized at the time. And yeah. I actually would argue busting is not homophobic. I mean, I think if anything, like Elliot Gould may be a homophobic character, yeah. but I don't think the movie is. But yeah, no, I listened to Hyams's commentary on the Blu-ray and he was actually talking about how they had some kind of, um, oh man, I can't remember. It was some gay rights union basically helped not only approve, there's a, there's a big scene in a gay bar that turns into a big fight and not only did they support and approve the scene, they participated in the scene. And then those same people apparently, or some of them, went out and came out against the movie, which he didn't really understand mm-hmm. uh, exactly. But but yeah, busting is fucking fantastic. I mean, I just really want- it moves, too. It really does. Yeah. And, and Camera as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He loves his tracking shots. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. he's moving the camera almost all the time in this movie. A lot of walk and talk in a great way. And has one of my favorite ever foot chase turned shootout yeah. turned back into foot chase. It is f- just a showstopper. It's yeah. so good. I mean, so- Hyams is another guy. Like, I feel like there's certain there's certain directors like Yates is one and Hyams is one guys who were kind of huge in their moment and are not necessarily. I mean, people like us, we know who they are and like them, but they're not. They don't get screened as often and talked about as often and Hyams is really a killer filmmaker absolutely and this was his first movie his first uh, and like Yates uh, Yates goes what to a great Crawl and oh Hyams goes to Relic you know there, there's yeah. similar movies in that filmography which is yeah. interesting and it's got a great opening Busting has like that great opening with the you dentist know, that I won't, yeah I think I don't want to answer any of your questions well look I'm going to make a date with her I'm going to tell her I'm a friend of yours right? <laughs> you're no friend of mine oh I certainly would like to be Anyway, she's going to be calling you up to check me out like any smart hooker would, right? And you're going to tell her that everything's cool. You got it? I am not going to do any such thing. Listen, do you have a warrant? You got a warrant? I don't have a warrant. Do you have a warrant? No, we don't got a warrant. Then I think you better get out of here. No, we can't do that. We don't have enough evidence if we leave now for a conviction. It would be embarrassing if we went in front of the grand jury without any evidence. Embarrassing for me, for him. Embarrassing for you, Dr. Pictures, television, Walter Cronkite. Get out of here. Wait a minute. I think Dr. Dickman here is right. Huh? I think we ought to leave and uh, perhaps uh, discuss it some other time, a more comfortable place. Well, I think you're quite right. Thank you. You're quite welcome. Uh, where would you feel more comfortable? Oh, I don't know. Maybe uh, the doctor's home with the doctor's wife and children. Beautiful idea. The man's quite glass. Wait, please. All right, all right. I think you men are despicable. Oh, and you're a Cub Scout, right? What I want to with, uh, what's her name? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Cordelia, or Cornelia Sharp, who was like Al Pacino's girlfriend in Serpico. That's like, right. Playing the most beautiful prostitute in the history of movies in the yep. opening scene of Busting. Yeah, no, it's great. It, it, it's really just about these two vice cops. I mean, the one thing the movies both have in common is they're about two cops basically setting their sights on a particular criminal and fucking with him incessantly. And in the case of Busting, it's really entertaining because it's Alan Garfield, mm-hmm. who I believe was one of Quentin's acting teachers yeah. I could be wrong about that um, but Alan Garfield plays like I think like a mid-level mafioso type there's a guy who has his fingers in some rackets and they just make a point to you know come at him all the time yeah. and you saw your friend I got a lot of friends yeah this is the guy who buys your dope we saw you chatting with him downstairs 
Yeah, you're gonna score soon, big, huh? Score? You guys use a lot of grown-up words. They say we're gonna close you down. We're gonna stick to you like your underwear. You got my permission to try? Good, because we wouldn't want to do nothing without your permission. I don't blame you. You guys want to take regular seats and enjoy the fights? No, thanks. You could learn something. Yeah, like what? I don't know. It's an interesting game. You know, you got to know what you're doing. Otherwise, you get your head busted playing in that. You nervous? I don't get nervous. I've been working at it too long. We all know that. <laughs> you know what's funny? What's really funny is that you two guys really think you're doing something. I mean, you go around busting $10 hookers for what? For 200 bucks a week, right? And you act like Captain Marvel or somebody. You really think you can sneak around and get Rizzo? Well, is that what you think? Take a look down there. You see those little people all paid to get in? You see those little two monkeys in there beating their brains out inside the ring? You think I got where I am by letting punks like you get to me? You're playing with yourselves. It's gonna happen, Spanky. We're gonna bust your ass. Captain Marvel saving the world by busting $10 hookers. Watch out for your cape, Captain. Make sure it doesn't get caught in places it shouldn't be. It's gonna happen. Shazam! <laughs> and there's a point where you're like, I don't know if this is such a good idea. <laughs> right, yeah. And the movie kind of goes there. Yeah, I mean, but another kind of weird, in a weird way, an Uncut Gems companion piece, yes. Elliot Gould's yes. character, like a guy who's just kind of working against his own interests. Yep, you know, absolutely. And it gets very tense. But, yeah, and know. there's some, they, there's definitely just some great chemistry, again, between Robert Blake and, and Gould. And Gould is, I was noticing he has a different gait. He has a different swagger in this in terms mm-hmm. of the way he moves. He has a certain confidence that plays different than almost any other character I've seen him. Like, I don't know what it is, but it it really works with the comedy too, Mm -hmm. you know? But man, I was just so impressed seeing that the foot chase shootout. It's a shootout that goes in the downtown. There's a downtown LA. I think it's the um, Grand Central Market. And there's like people all around and there's people shooting and it's just like, you're just like, oh, fuck. And it's a phenomenal film. Like this is, please, please, if you live in Los Angeles, yeah. Go to this double bill. One of these two days. It's playing on the 26th and the 27th. Go fucking both days. I mean, this is such <laughs> yeah. a good double bill. I cannot stress it. Oddly enough, the last time Freebie and the Bean played at the New Beverly uh, a number of years ago, I actually did go see it two days in a row because... With man, a crowd? That I'm... movie hates cars. <laughs> <laughs> it smashes yes. them up. It um, but uh, we are importing a very, 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 very rare 35 millimeter print of Busting. We brought it in from... Uh, all the way from the UK, and cool. it looks great. And if you want to see it in 35, this will probably be your only two chances. Fuck. Well, and speaking right. to your point about the cars and Freebie and the Bean, didn't they actually even, they crashed so many they ran out? I think they I had think, to go get I, some they had during to go, production. They went, like, yeah. during production, they actually just destroyed all the cars they had, and, like, we're sending the, you know, PAs <laughs> around town to get, you know, to, like, car rental places. I'm sure they appreciated getting them back, <laughs> oh, you know, nice. totaled, but, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, do not miss, do not miss. Uh, and then we're going to f- close out the regular month programming with one Upon a Time in Hollywood on the 28th and 29th. Happy leap year. Yes, indeed. Um, so let's move into the midnights. We have uh, Tromance playing every Friday. Is every that right? Every Friday. So it's going to be February 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th. I would say uh, that uh, Quentin did a three uh, podcast stint on the rewatchables, and the King of New York one is just 
pure gold. One yes. of the best podcasts. Go listen of the to year. that. The other two are good. That's the other one that I love this year. Yeah, no, it's one of the best. Actually, the Unstoppable heard. one is great too. But that's why I was bringing that one up because what I liked about the one on Unstoppable, a, it convinced me I need to watch Unstoppable. Uh, Which but, you do. But it was just a really nice dear Quentin at length talk about Tony Scott and yeah. what Tony Scott's movies mean to him. So I love that we have a Tony Scott Quentin film. Yeah, uh, Midnight. And I think it's one of Tony Scott's. I mean, I'm a fairly big Tony Scott fan, too, with the exception but- of Top Gun. But uh, I think. True Romance is, you know, that's maybe his best, certainly top two or three. And I mean, you actually, I think both of his top two, in my opinion, are playing this month. We'll get to the other one in a minute. But Especially material. He's got great material to work yeah, with. Yeah, and I so. think it's really cool. I do like the, seeing Tarantino's voice filtered through another director. Yeah, I mean, me I think, like a movie, that, again, it's sort of like the Jeremiah Johnson thing, where it's both a John Milius movie and a Sidney Pollack movie, and I feel like it's kind of you know, you get you kind of get two movies for the price of one. And mm. True Romance is like that because it is a great Tony Scott movie. It's got all the stuff you want from Tony Scott. And it's definitely directed differently from how, you know, like it, like it's, it's funny that it works as well as it does because I think of their directorial styles is so different. I mean, you know, Tony Scott, the you know, there's a cut every five seconds. If that, there's, you know, all the long lenses, all that, you know, very different from what Quentin does. And yet it works in its own way, you know, really, really beautifully. And is, uh, and is a, and yeah, one of the dates it's playing is Valentine's Day. I will be bringing my lady on Valentine's Day. I can't think of anything more romantic yeah, what a great, than seeing show romance great on idea. Valentine's Day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we have a really special um, show on the first. Phil, tell so, us. So yeah, we're going to be doing something called the Coming Soon Trailer Show. And I'm super excited about this because we sifted through our vaults, all Quentin's personal collection, the New Beverly's personal collection, as well as uh, collector friends that we have. And we put together a variety of trailers for the films that are playing this month. So if you're curious to see what Skyriders is about or some of the other films that you maybe you had not heard about and you want to see like a two-minute highlight reel, um, a bunch of those, we're going to be playing all the trailers for the films that we're playing, um, as well as a variety of other cool shorts um, and surprises. And I highly recommend coming if you are a fan of uh, Tarantino's newest movie. I think there's going to be some cool surprises there uh, for that. And it is free. And the free. exciting thing about it, yeah, it's free. So nice. it's something we're trying out. We're going to do a free admission on this. I think it's going to be a blast, and hopefully it will get you coming back to some of the other films on the schedule. I think this is a really neat idea. You know, you're doing it at the very beginning of the month. You can let people sample and decide based on what they see, what they should you know, go check out for the whole month. Really cool. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of trailers, and we run trailers before every film at the New Bev, but I think separating them from a double bill and just kind of creating their own, making them their own thing is always uh, interesting and you can really get a different vibe on it. Yeah, so I mean... You go to the box office and say you heard it on Pure Cinema, it is free to go. <laughs> and if you <laughs> don't do that, it is also free, but way less sexy. Um, uh, yeah, and you know my motto, if it's free, it's me. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds fantastic. Um, then we have Aloha, Bobby and Rose. We were talking about flight um, mute trucks. Uh, from 1975 on the 8th. Um, He's been coming up a bit because back on our uh, soundtrack episode, I highlighted as Dusty and Sweets McGee, which yep. for me had had quite a tie-in to Quentin's film, and uh, whether consciously or not, just the way the soundtrack was used, the radio was used at the start of this film, the radio is being used in the same way. Absolutely. Here, and I loved that about it. And, and seeing all the signs in LA. It's something that runs through a lot of his work, at least soundtrack stuff. And yeah. this is a loose, loose remake of Breathless. And uh, Paula Matt plays the lead and Diane Hull. Um, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing, but I remember one of the early attempts at a screenplay that I made. I had a guy going back to his high school reunion and I don't know why, but I had seen Aloha, Bobby and Rose at the time. And he was talking to some girl that used to be an old flame of his and described 
uh, Diane Hall to her, to her in this movie. And I don't remember what it was even about or why I tried to work it into a script, but I was just like, you know, like uh, Diane Hall and Aloha Bobby and Rose. Because she's very cute in this movie. She is, and yeah. she's very good. And they make a nice pairing together. Yeah. And he's an auto mechanic. And she is, um, I think she's a waitress or she works Single at a mom. drive-in yeah, or something. But they're also just really, they're kind of innocents. That's yeah. what's nice about them. Absolutely. Um, he also looks like he could have wandered in from um, uh, what's the other movie that Model Shop or something? He oh, feels yeah. like he could have been hanging out in that yeah, world for sure. If you like the Los Angeles movies like Model yeah. Shop or yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this has excellent footage of driving around Los Angeles. Totally, you don't yeah. See yeah. Movies. yeah, it's great. No, it's a really good movie, really neat. Uh, Midnight and then Bang and soundtrack too. Right oh, now. yeah, great yeah. soundtrack. Yeah, as with most of his films. Um, then we have Mean Dog Blues in 16, uh, from 1978 on the 15th. I have not seen this film. This is a really rare movie. Yeah, it's a. I haven't seen it either, but it is an ultra rare AIP film. Um, stars, George Kennedy, I think. Yeah, George Kennedy. I think it's uh, Greg Henry, one of the greatest actors uh, from uh, oh, nice. <laughs> I think uh, he plays a guy who gets just before uh, yeah. mixed up in something, and then you know lawyers suck, and somehow he gets put away into like a southern like chain gang prison camp. George Kennedy is uh, the leader of that. He's extra sweaty, extra mean, and I think they like train dogs there, so maybe there's like a white dog type thing. I'm not exactly sure. Like a cool hand loop connection um, in there. But yeah. then, yeah, then he uh, escapes, and then it uh, turns into like a chase picture. At least yeah. that's my understanding. This movie is ultra rare. Yeah. So. No, no, Scatman Crothers, too. Nice. No, no official DVD, I don't think, at all, and it's not on YouTube. It's nowhere. It's like not seeable, so definitely one to check yeah, out. Sure. Uh, and then... Two that I know that Jim has seen, but we'll start with Carmen Baby from 1967 on the 22nd. Yeah, which is, I believe, out of print on DVD. It's kind of a hard one to come by. Uh, Directed by Radley Metzger, who I'm a huge, huge fan of. And I think, you know, this is kind of a rare opportunity to see a Radley Metzger movie on the big screen. I mean, Radley Metzger, you know, he did a lot of, I guess... I don't know what you call it, softcore movies, erotic movies, whatever, but was like the sort of legitimately the one like great auteur of that who really, you know, he kind of uses sex the way Minnelli uses musical numbers or Peckinpah uses shootouts. It's like it's like sex is actually used to kind of tell a story and convey character. And his movies are fun. They're funny. They're like lively. They're not, you know, they're just they're really unique and one of a kind. And I feel like it's a type of movie that no longer exists. I mean, softcore movies basically once the internet came along and every, you know, 10-year-old could get hardcore on their computer, it yeah. kind of killed softcore movies. Um, but this is a great, you know, his his stuff I feel like is just terrific and it's, it's a great opportunity to see on the big screen, see his, you know, he's like, again, really good director, like he really good, beautiful compositions, beautiful lighting, like he really put a lot of care into it. So uh, if you're not familiar with Radley Metzger, I definitely recommend checking that out. And if you are, you don't need me to tell you that. <laughs> and it's connected to the opera, Carmen, is what I'm Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. And then The Hospital, uh, you know, written by Patty Chayefsky of Network fame. You watch that for the first time, Jim, or you'd seen I, it? You know, I, I'm not sure if I – I felt like I had seen it before, but then I watched it again last week to prepare for this, and, and I don't think I had or I had fallen asleep or something. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because it's a movie that I know people love. And to me, I mean, the reason to see this movie, there's one reason. It's George C. Scott. Yeah. I mean, George C. Scott, you know, in this – I mean, in anything generally is, like, great to watch. He is fantastic. And, I mean, I find this movie mildly frustrating because I think Arthur Hiller is, like – not the greatest director in the world. And I, he, 
I don't think he showcases George C. Scott's performance as well as he could. I mean, you've got one of the great actors in the world saying Petty Chayefsky's dialogue, and you shoot half the movie on the back of his head, or with him like in some weird composition where it's like he's a speck in the corner in like a lit room and darkness around him, and like it's just a very directorially, it's a really weird movie. Um, And so I I think Killer kind of works against the material and against George C. Scott a little bit. But that and that performance is just fantastic and a very weird like romance kind of in the middle of it so that strange. doesn't completely I mean I don't know it's a really weird movie like yeah. but but definitely it's it's a good midnight movie I oh, actually yeah. feel like it will probably play better at midnight than it played for me watching it at like five o'clock in the afternoon yeah no I agree I think it's a, I mean it does still have some teeth in some respects to it in terms of the send up and the satire that it's doing about. Uh, the hospitals and medical stuff, but um, but yeah, it ain't, it ain't no network, unfortunately. <laughs> but no, if you uh, like it, network and hate, um, you know, modern hosp- hospitals, uh, yeah, hospital uh, medical sort of stuff, then hosp- it's, <laughs> the hospital. It's kind you. of a poor man's network or a poor man's mash yeah. or a rich man's teachers, depending <laughs> how you look at it. But <laughs> oh. it's uh, another that's another, Arthur Hiller, t- another Listen. Arthur Hiller movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't think an he Arthur Hiller movie might be playing right now as we speak. Yeah, too. let's take a look. Nightwing. Oh well, that one I do. I mean, I no, I don't want to make it sound like journey. Journeymen like that have always made great movies in, in, in it, that. He has, always, yeah. yes. Silver Streak, some, I like. Yeah. Um, I think that's him. Um, anyway. Some, yeah, In-Laws. In-Laws. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Um, all right, so on to the Kitty Matinees. Uh, and then, of course, we're talking at the top about Cartoon Club on the 8th and 9th. Did Jules tell us what the theme is this yeah, month? Yeah, I think this month is going to be a romance theme. Fantastic. So uh, if you want to bring your loved one to something at 10 a.m. on a Saturday or Sunday, if you've had a long night the night before, then certainly roll on in. Um, but these cartoon clubs are the most fun that you can have at the New Beverly. Uh, they are basically a feature-length presentation of some of our favorite cartoons themed around, uh, the, and the theme changes around each month. And uh, our director of operations, Jules McLean, she programs them with animation historian Jerry Beck. And they tend to be a, a wide selection of different studios and styles and eras. Um, but watching them back to back to back to back on the big screen with an audience full of uh, fellow animation maniacs is totally a blast. Absolutely. And uh, these generate, uh, the, the audience for these uh, are across the board. So you have uh, little kids uh, going to their first theater experience to people that work in the animation departments uh, for the studios for the last like 80 years. So we got a lot of people that are like, talking amongst themselves before the show and like sharing his history and also meeting people. Uh, it's kind of becoming a networking thing for uh, local animation community. So you see people from all of the shows on Nick and, you know, Cartoon Network and all that sort of stuff. And they kind of like talk about what they're all into. It's a blast. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And, and the kiddies I, movies in general are so much fun there. The way you guys put on a show for them. I mean, like having two kids who haven't really gone to that many movies at the stage uh, theatrically. This last month, we, you know, we saw three of the four Miyazakis and they were just totally falling in love with them in a way I hadn't seen them with any kind of movie, uh, which I thought was fascinating. Um, I don't know if it was the simplicity or just the absolute heart to them, but it was the pre show. It was, there was like a raffle. Uh, you know, um, one of my sons won a raffle and Marnie, who was sitting next to him, also won the raffle. And I was like, what is the odds of two kids sitting next to each other? So, but it, like, 
you could see in that moment that's enough sometimes the theatrical experience of a show sometimes because I got that as a kid it's not cheating when I was a kid they had halftime shows and they had you know so I just I think if you have and don't be fooled by the word kitty it's 75% there's adults and oh yeah people all ages are welcome yeah but it is a really good but, time. yeah it's just again one of those things that you guys do at the new bav you really make it an enjoyable experience it is not the rent a seat experience that you get at your multiplex it's just a whole different thing yeah. and yeah. i really appreciate that i had the time of my life at the gremlins kitty matinee watching <laughs> that movie with a packed theater of kids who had never seen it and just like there was a there was a little girl behind me who when the gremlin exploded in the microwave she went no and then she went yeah <laughs> and it was just so great i mean it was it's so fun that's yeah, fantastic you know? kids yeah. are definitely uh honest reviewers on what they're watching so absolutely. they will tell you what they think absolutely um so that's great and a, a wonderful staple at the new bev the cartoon clubs uh, so that's the 8th and 9th. And then for the rest of the month, we have uh, Harry Potter. So I'm going to run through what's playing, and then we're going to highlight one of the films for sure, because uh, I know Jim has something to say about it. So uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone uh, from 2001 on the 1st and 2nd. Uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, 2002 on the 8th and 9th. Uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, my personal favorite, uh, from 2004 on the 15th and 16th. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, 2005, on the 22nd and 23rd. And Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, 2005, on the 29th and the 1st of March. Now, Jim wants to make a case for Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, I just sort of wanted to put in a plug for that one because I think the general conventional wisdom is that Prisoner of Azkaban is the best one. I mean, I think because it's Alfonso Cuaron and it's an auteur movie and it is interesting, again, getting back to that thing, it's sort of like the Corman thing. It's interesting seeing an auteur collide with a big franchise movie and see like how much of it is him. And and I do think that that movie, his personality is like very interestingly integrated with the movie and I do like that movie a lot. Uh, but I do think in terms of capturing the spirit of the books... And just giving a sense, conveying a like genuine childlike sense of magic. I think Chamber of Secrets is the best of the series. And I'm really a big fan. Actually, I, I think Chris Columbus deserves more credit than he gets. You know, again, I think like, well, Quaron is and Mike Newell and the people who followed him are more, quote unquote, serious directors. But I think Columbus really, Chamber of Secrets really shows his talent for putting together this kind of like crowd-pleasing entertainment. I mean, I just think it's the funniest, most fun one of the series. And so I kind of just wanted to put in a little, you know, just a little evangelizing for <laughs> Christopher Columbus and Chamber of Secrets in particular, because I really think it is it is a just perfectly engineered thrill ride. Two and a half hours nonstop entertainment. Very nice. And, and no one's going to be able to see these on film anymore. And that's, I think, the big difference. These are things you watch oh, on DVD and streaming forever. I, I mean, this I'm gonna, I'm planning on going to all of these because I love revisiting a series. I love binging a series in order and seeing how it develops. And and especially when like the Harry Potter series where you can kind of compare and contrast the different director styles and things like that. Um, and these movies, some franchises you can do that with at home. You're maybe not going to lose as much. These are big screen movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also put in a plug for that. They're all, I think, all of these five. Uh, I believe maybe one of maybe not one of them, but at least four out of the five are written by Steve Clovis, who you know, guy who wrote Fabulous Baker Boys, Flesh and Bone, Race oh, with Flesh Moon, and Bone, great screenwriter. Uh, so you know, yeah, cool, very cool. And if you uh, 
liked the Safdie's Brothers film uh, Good Time, then you can come see Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which co-stars yeah. the co-star of Good Time, uh, Rob Pattinson. <laughs> yeah, Very nice. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to the Monday matinees. Um, this is a great lineup. Phil, what is the through line? So we have sort of uh, a Love on the Run uh, series to tie in with Valentine's Day, also tie in with the True Romance Midnight. So it's going to start with Moonrise Kingdom, Wes Anderson's film from 2012 on February 3rd. Big, big fan of this one. This came up on my um, best of the decade list uh, that we did on the show recently. Uh, yeah, just a really sweet movie. Great little romance. And uh, and interestingly, Elric made the comparison to another film, which I hadn't connected to, which is Badlands, which is playing on the 24th of the month. And that it kind of is like Badlands Junior <laughs> or something, yeah. um, which I think is interesting. Um, so we follow that up. Uh, with one of my favorite films, certainly, uh, on the 10th, uh, Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66 from 1998. What are you doing? What are you doing? What? Don't touch me. All right, don't touch me. What do you me. mean, don't touch don't me? You're touch supposed to be me. husband and wife. I'm just trying to make We're it We're the couple good. that doesn't touch one another. We like each other. We like each other a lot, and we span time together. We just don't touch each other, all right? Now let's span time. Let's use a different color in the back. Do blue, all right? This is the blue period where we... Get up, get up. Don't touch me again, all right? Just look like you like me, and let's span time, all right? You got that? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, I don't want to waste any more money. This is my last $2 okay. I'm putting in. Yes or no? Yes. All right, you do it for me. If you don't want to do it, don't no, do it. No, no, I'll do it. Okay, let's look like we like each other and span time and do not touch me, okay? Do not touch me. Okay. Do not kiss me. Oh, wait, come on. Just a movie that only gets better every time I watch it. Same, you feel the same, Joe? Agreed. I love that movie. It's yeah. a movie that makes me go. Oh, I wish there. Was, I do wish there was more Vincent Gallo. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's just the personality of, and the type got in the way. Definitely. But, but I like. But I like all the movies I've seen. I know yeah. there's a couple. One that screened to people, but has been shelved by him permanently. And it's it's always frustrating to hear that because I also think uh, Brown Bunny is a really interesting movie. But oh, yeah. but it's not. It's more on the on an art level. Whereas Buffalo '66 is, is all you know, really classic indie American film. Yeah. And it's it's really funny Hilarious. and strange and Ben, so ben Gazzara stuff is gold oh, him singing uh, every, it's so imaginative yeah. literally every scene in the movie yeah. is hilarious or just gold in some level yeah and a movie that i think does require you see it not require but it's definitely much better seeing it on film mm. projected because it's got really interesting cinematography like vincent gallo said he was modeling it on like the old nfl films of the 70s that was like mm. his palette for it and it does uh, that's, I, wow. that's really fun with all the buffalo bill stuff yeah, yeah. so i think yeah. it i think it's a movie it's another good uh Definitely something you want to see on 35 yeah. on the big it was screen. It shot on reversal stock, and it looks yes, exactly. awesome on, exactly. on film. And then we're going to go into David Lynch's Wild at Heart on uh, February 17th. One of his best. Great yep. fucking movie. Yeah, this jacket, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, Nick Cage and Laura Dern and Laura Dern's mom. Uh, why can't I think of Laura Dern's mom's name right now? Diane Ladd. I'm sorry. Thank you, Diane Ladd. Yeah, she's great and just one of her most unhinged performances ever. She's for, so I know a lot of listeners are big uh, Perdita Durango listeners out there, but uh, there is a fun connection between this and because you've got Barry Gifford characters who are, uh, what is it, uh, Isabel 
uh, is it Rosalini? Mm-hmm. Uh, who I'm thinking it's her character is the same character uh, in this film as one of the main characters from Perdita Durango. So it's just this weird noir, uh, noir on the run kind of through line from Gifford stuff, which I I like that film a lot. Uh, it's really fucked up, but uh, it's not as fun as Wild at Heart. But uh, yeah. Uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, this would be just great to see with the crowd. Yeah, it's going to be electrifying. And then we're going to take it down a notch with uh, Terrence Malick's Badlands on... Uh, well, you say that, take it down. But then you know what? I always thought of that movie as a downer. I saw it at the new Bev a couple years ago, and it was funny as Very fuck. Funny. Very and funny. And then people were... It was raucous, and I had mm-hmm. never seen that side of that movie. It mm-hmm. wasn't until I started with the crowd that I got the humor to it because I always thought of it as a very like Malick how we think mm-hmm, of Malick now mm-hmm. but no that's a funny film exactly. yeah, yeah there's all kinds of Martin Sheen asides that are yeah, just yeah, like yeah. I just yeah. meant energy okay. oh yeah like, fair enough you fair know yeah. Wild at Heart's like basically pure cocaine yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true uh, definitely more muted than that yeah, yeah. fair enough I also yeah. always forget War Notes is in it like, for oh, some reason it's just you great. forget he's the father yeah yeah, yeah but no. it's, a, it's a great film Badlands and Terrence Malick is in it so you can actually see Terrence Malick before he stopped letting people take his picture and all that kind of stuff yeah I mean still one of his best films ever and one of the great films of the 70s and yeah i just adore badlands and obviously ties into true romance uh you know if we're talking about the similarities the voiceover and the characters in some ways i've always been curious and i didn't i never asked quentin about it do do any of you guys know was the choice in true romance to use the music that's almost identical to badlands was that it is scott's or was that quentin's i that's a good question i don't know if it was in the script but i know that it's Hans zimmer definitely reworking that that gas i was just always curious where who that came from that's a beautiful piece actually one of my favorite pieces of music Mm -hmm. ever and it's an old piece of music i want to say it's like 18 something you know like an old German piece of music Terrence Malick movies are really good if you're a filmmaker and you want to find like steal basically steal good music ideas Terrence Malick is great to watch because he has a lot of great like classical pieces that are in the public domain yeah no that's fair that's a good point Um, yeah so then uh, that will close out the Monday matinees great group and then we're going to go into the Wednesday afternoon classics I see a musical through line, Phil, is that what I we're believe t- these are all Oscar? Uh, Oscar-winning musicals. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to just zip through these real quick. Uh, well, the- I think Jim has something to talk about, the first one. Oh. Well, I just want I, I, you know, The King and I is showing on the fifth. I just want to kind of put in a plug for The King and I because I think it's one of those movies – there's some movies I think are classics they're so classic they're kind of taken for granted like I don't know that people actually watch The King Mm -hmm. and I anymore (laughs) it's just sort of like oh it's in one of these movies that you know whatever and it is a great musical it's a great big screen musical it's one of the early 20th century Fox Cinemascope movies and those Fox Scope movies from the early to mid 50s I mean they really used it it's like they really just fill the frame with great production design and great depth and King and I is I've seen it on the big screen you know, I've seen like a print of it once and it was just like a spiritual experience in the movie theater. So I just kind of wanted to say that that's one I think you really, you know, want to try to get out to. Okay, cool. So yeah, that is on the fifth. And then we have... And Yul Brynner won a uh, best actor for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Um, and then West Side Story, 1961 on the 12th. Being you... remade this year by Spielberg. Oh, right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And then The Sound of Music, 1965 on the 19th. And American in Paris, 1951, on the 26th. So that is a really great month of musicals for fans of those. I highly recommend all these. Also, uh, I see that I don't have it on this list here, but we're going to be running an IB Technicolor print of West Side Story. Ooh. And that movie is absolutely incredible yeah. uh, on the big screen. We ran it a number of years ago during our like Russ Tamblin series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the, and uh, IB Technicolor, I mean, one of the great color photography movies ever. I mean, West Side Story is just beyond stunning so yeah that's and then when uh sound of music we played that uh a little while back during our kitty matinee series and that movie 
totally just kills with the crowd. It's it's absolutely stunning. And also want to tie that one into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because Nicholas Hammond, who plays uh, ah, uh, who right. uh, plays it. Sam Wanamaker in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's one of the one of the kids in Sound of Music. So uh, I like to think that maybe I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, the roadmap, uh, um, but you yeah, know, I, I think this is really great because I think there are a lot of people who have aversions to musicals, and I think you know, I get it. I I have some aversions myself, but I think if you go and sit down in a theater and watch just about any one of these movies, I can't imagine you're not going to come out and go, I don't know what I was thinking. Kind yeah. of, you know, it's yeah. just they're a spectacle. They're what they are cinema. You know, I mean, they were the major force in cinema for a long time, and there's a reason for it. They're very great to watch. To me, these movies that are on this list give me the same visceral rush that Freebie and the Bean gives. Wow. It's like instead of car, but like like just the sheer the spectacle of the cars and Freebie and the Bean. It's like just the spectacle of the human body and movement. And you know, West Side Story and Sound of Music, both directed by Robert Wise. So yep. it's like you know, a guy who really, really knew how to showcase that kind of material and yeah. use the camera to kind of emphasize what the dancers are giving him. You know, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that George Shakiris won the Best Sporting As- Actor Oscar over Montgomery Clift for Judgment <laughs> in Nuremberg that year, but that aside, yeah, great movie. Yeah, no, so this is a great series. Um, and then we have final gothic romances, all yeah. gothic romances in, in their way. Yeah, no, Freaky, Freaky Fridays. Fridays this month. Um, we have... A whole bunch of good stuff here. Uh, we have Cat People. Paul this is Schrader's, Paul yeah. Schrader's Cat People, 1982, uh, on the 7th. I didn't think you were ready, but you are. I knew it when I saw you with him. Your whole body burns. I'm not like you! You tell yourself that it's love, but it isn't. It's blood. Death. I'm a big fan of Cat People. I really like this. Very sexy movie. Yeah, Natasha Kinski is yeah. uh, uh, very good in this movie. And it's a great remake because it's nothing like the other film. And even totally. the story is nothing alike. Well, it's, I, it's, I love there's the, like one one scene. It's like yeah. a pool scene. Yeah, like basically. That's it, yeah. yeah, I mean, I love the casting of it too. I mean, John Hurd, you know, yeah. Ed Bagley Jr., Malcolm McDowell. I mean, it's a really interesting cast. Yeah. And it's it's fun. I mean, it's interesting. And another interesting movie with a tour in collision with his material yes. a little bit. Yeah, you yes. know, <laughs> very much. Um, yeah, yeah. Also got a great Giorgio Moroto soundtrack. Yes. So it's kind of similar to the synth soundtrack in Uncut Gems. And of course, Quentin used uh, the Bowie song oh, yeah. in uh, Inglorious Bastards to great effect. Yep. Yes. Um, then we have The Bride of Frankenstein, nineteen thirty-five, on the fourteenth. A great yeah. Valentine's Day movie. Great That's James Whale film. A great running time. <laughs> nice <yep>. and brief. <laughs> yeah. No. This is this is you got to take your your significant other to this one. That, and also might be like the greatest. Um, if there's a movie that was made out of time, that might be the ultimate Me Too era movie. I feel like it's Bride of Frankenstein. There's something <laughs> so brilliant about her reaction to be yeah. partnered with Frank, and That's everyone's great. just like, "Yep, you're together now." And her her visceral <laughs> disgust is like exciting to me. Yeah. Like I love her as a character. She's Ella Lanchester, one of the great moments and uh, you know presences in a movie. Um, and then we have uh, The Hunger. Speaking of Tony Scott, uh, nineteen eighty three uh, on the twenty first. 
Yeah, one of, in my opinion, one of the three best photographed movies in cinema history. Mm. So nice. to see it, you know, you definitely want to see it on the big screen for that. Uh, it's my all-time favorite vampire movie, period. I mean, I feel it's, again, along with True Romance, I think one of Tony Scott's best movies. Yeah, no. Um, very, very interesting kind of structurally. Like, it almost has, it's almost like Nicholas Rogue meets MTV kind yeah. of style yeah. that I think is really, really cool. Amazing performances by Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. Great movie about mortality and aging and just... Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I, it's it's kind of one of those movies I don't want to say too much about for people who haven't seen it because I feel like it's a cool movie to go into cold if you haven't. But Absolutely. just gorgeous movie in every way. Yeah. No, all around. Gorgeous people, everything. Um, and then closing out the month of Freaky Fridays, we have Candyman from 1992 on the 28th. Maybe my favorite horror film of the 90s. I think I think it's one of the truly great horror films. I mean, I'm excited to see what the Jordan Peele's uh, group will come up with for a remake, but it's an, it's an amazing, you know, the score is amazing. Yeah, I was just going to say, one of my favorite horror yeah. scores. Yeah, by yeah. Philip Glass. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, and if you, the Beautiful. horror noir documentary came out this year, it's on Shudder about African-American culture uh, and through the horror film. And it's beautiful, and and it's fun when they get to Candyman. They ha- there are some problem. There are parts that they raise that they're like, oh yeah, you know. But there's some stuff about the white woman uh, relationships. But you know that aside, this is just such a good film about um, also about kind of the, the urban issues with urban living uh, and race relations. And uh, I think it's one of the on- one of the only few post '90s uh, icons we've created. I don't. I think if you look think about it, we really haven't created a lot from that period. You know, post Freddie Jason. I think Candyman is one of the few that would stand the test of time as a modern boogeyman. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just a classic. Bernard Rose is a beautiful, I think A Mortal Beloved is a gorgeous movie. Yeah, yeah. great and, director. And he brings Very that same good. kind of um, classical uh, filmmaking, to, kind of like James Well does. I think they're actually yeah. similar filmmakers. That's, that's cool. Um, yeah. And it also co-stars uh, Casey Lemons, who just directed Harriet. Very nice. Yeah, and she was right, also right. just seen in Silence of the Lambs, which we played in January. Okay, let's do the picks. What's everybody's picks? Let's start with our guest, Jim. Do you need a minute? You know, I, boy, can I have two? Because nope. <laughs> I, uh, the mag track kind of makes all that jazz to me a very, str- and the fact that it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, the All That Jazz is definitely strong, but I, 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 I would have to say, I, I really, I'm going to, I'm going to just go out there for Jeremiah Johnson. The McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Jeremiah Johnson double feature. Uh, I know McCabe and Mrs. Miller isn't as, rare as some of the other things here but it's to see both of those in ib technicolor uh, you know two great westerns of the 70s and again jeremiah johnson i think is uh, somewhat underrated and needs to be seen on the big screen so so i'll go with jeremiah johnson if i have to pick one movie but all that jazz honorable mention yeah that's good very cool phil what do you think Man, the Super Fuzz Death Promise double is going to be hard to top, especially uh, ending with Death Promise. You were going to go home whistling that theme song, <laughs> and that's a promise. Uh, right. My single film pick is Darker Than Amber. Like, if you see one film on this entire calendar, that's my pick. But my uh, my my double features differently. The Michael Tuckner uh, Fears the Key Villain double. I just think that's, to me, pure gold. Excellent. Yeah, I was thinking about that one myself. I'm going to go freebie in the bean busting. I think I was pretty enthusiastic at that yeah. moment in the calendar, but nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the only reason I didn't pick that is I figured you would, so I didn't want to waste. <laughs> I didn't want to waste my choice on freebie and the bean and busting because I knew somebody else was gonna. Yeah, that, gonna and do I, it, I was but. like, I, I had all kinds of backups because I knew yeah. somebody would go with it. It's such a great double. <laughs> uh, can um, I ask the guest one last question? Yeah. Of the films you haven't seen, what film do you most want to see on that calendar that Ooh. was discussed today? Uh, Darker than Amber, I'm definitely nice. is strong. You, you made a pretty strong case for that. So, uh, I, yeah, I think uh, Darker than Amber and um, 
what was the other one? Oh, uh, what's the, where did it go? Oh yeah, and uh, uh, Super Fuzz. Because I've never <laughs> nice. seen it. Just based on the very strange description and the fact that I do, I love Sergio Corbucci's westerns, but I've never seen Super Fuzz. So yeah, me, it's me it's gonna be a blast with the crowd. I can guarantee it. Uh, but this is a great calendar. Truly, yeah. I, there's a lot of exciting stuff running through that. So yeah, great um, month at the movies. Um, yeah, and if you come see some films and you see me or any of the other gentlemen here uh, at the theater, be sure to come up and say hello. Let us know what you love about the podcast and which films you are most excited to come see. All right. 